Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Uh, today is Tuesday, March 26, 2019, starting at 4.56 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 199th episode of the show. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the astrological forecast for April of 2019 um, with a little bit of chat and catching up at the beginning of the show as we talk about astrological topics before going to the forecast. So if you want to jump ahead to the forecast and skip all of our rambling in the introduction, then just look for the timestamp either below this video on YouTube or on the description page on the astrologypodcast.com website. For more information about how to support the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, uh, as well as getting some subscriber benefits like early access to new episodes or other bonus content, uh, please consider becoming a patron through our page on Patreon. So you can find out more information about that at theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. All right, let's jump into it. Hey guys, Austin and Kelly, welcome back to the show to talk about the forecast for April. Hey, Chris. Hey guys. Hey, so it has been a eventful few weeks since we talked last, and it sounds like for some reason all three of us are getting ready to or are in the process of moving. Yeah, this seems to be a random coincidence. Yeah, so your move is just a little, little relocation, right, Kelly? Just a small one to a whole other continent. <laughs> uh, Peter and I never do things by halves, and uh, he's been given a posting in Europe. So we're actually moving to Belgium in July for two years. So that's just a massive, exciting, but totally upheaval kind of thing. But you guys both have moves on as well. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe go- for me. Maybe. We're, Austin's we're, is we're maybe. looking. We're looking. Okay. Nothing's certain yet. Austin has a potential move on the horizon. Uh, Uranus went into my fourth house, and I suddenly decided it was time to move out of our basement apartment where we keep getting like noise interruptions from dogs and vacuums and things like that, and to move into a new place that finally has a dedicated podcast recording studio, because that had actually been a funding goal that I set last year through Patreon. And since we've almost reached it and our lease was up, we decided it was time to move out of our place where we've been in for nine years which coincidentally actually is pretty much the entirety of the Uranus transit through Aries uh, through my third house, and now it's going in my fourth house, and we are moving this week. So by episode 200 of the Astrology Podcast, which we're going to be celebrating at the beginning of April, I should be in the new recording studio. Awesome. That's really exciting. Yeah, you're, you're due. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, we'll have a guest room and other things like that, which is kind of wild. So we're going to have hopefully have you guys over at some point to actually join us in the physical podcast recording studio and maybe do one of these forecast episodes in person. That would be yeah, amazing. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. So uh, I've got a lot of other announcements in terms of that, which I'll get to probably on episode 200, just in terms of starting to shoot more in-person interviews with astrologers and possibly starting to work towards the next phase of the podcast, which is moving towards possibly doing like some sort of documentary or more documentary style interviews with prominent astrologers in the community. Mm. Very cool. Yeah, so I'll leave that. I'll leave that there. Um, so, um, what do you guys have going on, Austin? What have you been up to this past month? Oh, let's see. It's been a busy month. It was birthday month. 
I uh, I traveled out. I spent the first ten days of March out in uh, Virginia, where my mom's side of the family's from, visiting with my my grandma, whose birthday is very close to mine. She's um she's not doing well, so I wanted to see her and spend some shared birthday time with her. And then oh, I've just since I got back, I've just been you know doing my thing. I finally got my uh, my 2019 class schedule up, which I meant to do <laughs> a month and a half ago, but things kept happening. So that's up. I got uh, Fundamentals of Astrology Year 1 and 2. I'm also teaching a tarot and astrology class. And I'm doing just like a one-off um, online lecture on the Jupiter-Saturn cycle and the different elemental eras. Um, comparing, you know, uh, comparing the 200 years of, let's say, air um, that we're moving into with the last time it happened and the time before that and the time before that. So doing a little cross-section of history and sorting things by that technique. Uh, let's see, I've been electing for Sphere and Sundry. We've got a nice, uh, we've got a nice Jupiter and Venus series that should be out by the end of April. And I've been procrastinating um, uh, editing my own podcast, so my my little my little interview project. I've only put out one, but I think I have. Let's see, I have I have four more already recorded um, that just need a little love before I can put them out. So I'll probably make up for not putting out anything in retrograde March uh, by putting out two things in April. Don't don't hold me to that, or maybe do hold me to that. Right, I enjoyed that first episode that you released with Tony Mack. Oh, good. Yeah, Tony's Tony's great, you know. And Tony usually lets his work speak for himself or speak for itself. But I, I thought people would enjoy hearing him <laughs> hear, hearing him him uh, hearing him speak with words rather than crafted metals. Right. I gotta uh, gotta get some other good. Ones. I actually have another one with a. I have. I won't tell people who, but I have one with another astrological metalsmith. I have one um, with a publisher and astrologer, and I have one with a publisher slash alchemist. Um, and the alchemy one was actually um, was actually conducted in an outside alchemy barn while chickens crowed. Oh, I think I know who that might be. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, they're, they're, they're all good. It down a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm excited about that. So people can find out more about your podcast as well as the courses that you just mentioned on your website, which is austincopic.com. Yep, it's all uh, there. And then Sphere and Sundry is spherensundry.com. Brilliant. And uh, speaking of podcasts, it seems like everyone and their mom is launching a podcast now. Uh, Kelly, you though have been involved in launching. You guys have been really busy in launching your new podcast, which has been really amazing. I've been listening to over the past few weeks. Uh, that seems to be going well. Thank you. Yeah, we're having a lot of fun with it. Uh, we are keeping so far Touchwood. We've managed to keep to our once a week um, episode schedule, which has been a bit full on. Yeah. We had a, a little bit of a hiccup with our sound engineer, so I'm not sure what what will be happening there. In what the happened? Short term. What do you mean? Uh, there was just a bit of a. I don't know. We, we can't get in touch with him at the moment, actually. Uh -oh. So, well, we've got a guy like Austin's brother, Stephen. Does <laughs> is does he available amazing. for more work? He he is, and I'm actually trying to get him to come out to to Denver right now to help me 
I've got his email address. I'm going to email him immediately after we finish recording. Yeah, no, but, uh, he's amazing. And I, I highly recommend him, um, especially because I want to give him as much business as he can handle. I didn't uh, just- know he was available for work because I actually have other stuff on, like in my business that we could use an extra video sound engineer person for. Okay, well, you can't steal Steven. my guy, but uh, <laughs> Steven, I'm going. He's, to he's my guy, my- <laughs> right? Uh, no, but definitely Steven is amazing. If there's a so, little bit, yeah, uh, yeah. We'll put you in touch with him, and okay. then uh, yes, your podcast is amazing. I've been enjoying it. You guys are really killing it. You're doing one a week. Is that what the? It seemed more than that at one point, but maybe I'm just. You might have been listening up. to more. Yeah, no, we we usually get together every two weeks and record two episodes just for time efficiency purposes. And But we were dropping an episode every Monday morning, basically. And we are doing sort of week ahead style astrology. So, yeah, I I mean, Austin, <laughs> you've just got so much more maturity where you're like, I don't want to, you know, lock myself into a schedule. And me in my naivety is like the complete opposite. Like, no, let's do one every week. That sounds fantastic. No, you're just like not way behind on all the things that I'm way behind on. It's not really maturity at all. Oh, I don't know. There's a bit of behind. behind. (laughs) I'm behind on things. Well, and as a like, as a little bit of a preview for what this month is about, like April's about catching up. It's, I'm so excited for the astrology of April. I know we'll get to it, but yeah, yeah, the catching up, cleaning out kind of vibe. Um, But yeah, no, everybody and their dog is doing a podcast including me, which means it must there must be really simple technology available because I'm not the most technical person. So uh, yeah. no, I, I mean it's great, and your co-hosts are doing a great job. I think of filling in some of that stuff. That oh, they like- do all the technical. Cassandra Tyndall and Alicia Yusuf, who are two very dear friends, we do get asked all the time. Like we're called the Water Trio Astrology Podcast, and we get asked all the time: Are you guys actually all water signs? And we absolutely are, and our sons all form trines. So we've got an early Pisces, an early Cancer, and an early Scorpio. So we oh, wow. do actually have like a degree-based grand trine yeah. between a, our a sons. A legit in order. It's legit. Right. Not, one, not one of these cross-sign grand we're not, trines. Yeah, right. it's, we're not trying to like make something up out of nothing. It's legit. So uh, use it. Pet yeah. peeve. People doing grand trines where one of the uh, one of the planets is not in the sign of the proper element. You know the it whole does, point. It, yeah. The whole point of a grand trine is that there's elemental agreement. Yes. And so you know if you got that that planet sneaking you know at the end of Virgo, then you know you don't have a an, a grand air trine. No, I'm totally with you on that, Austin. I share that pet peeve. Right, so no false advertising there, and that's called the Water Trio podcast, fittingly, and you can find that on iTunes and SoundCloud and YouTube and Facebook and just about everywhere by doing a Google search for Water Trio podcast. Yes, thank you. Brilliant. And are you launching any classes or anything, other events? It seems like you guys you have a lot of like advertisements on Facebook lately, I've been noticing, so I know you have something going on. Yeah, I just learned about this stuff and then Tony does some stuff. So we just had my career and life direction four-part class start. So that's just kicked off. And my next webinar is on astrology and fertility. And that's coming up, I think it's Saturday, April 6th uh, for, it's through Astrology University. 
And because Austin and I do like to twin a little bit in our careers, um, on the 13th of April, I'm giving a talk on the Saturn-Jupiter cycle. Oh, really? For, yeah, okay. it's hilarious. Like, I know it, people must think we, like, know about this, but it's usually in the podcast where I'm like, oh, Austin, you're doing that. I'm doing the same. You're, like, um, competing with each other subconsciously? Uh, we just We that. have, we literally have the same prenatal lunation. Um, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, and as also, we to be, to be fair, time. I gave mine, uh, I actually gave my talk at a local group in That's January. That's true. You but, did. Um, there were problems with the recording, so I'm going to need to give it again. I love it. Yeah. So, Tony, our astrology university, is doing a summit on the, 20, the astrology of 2020, which is that weekend, April 13, April 14. So, I'm giving a talk as part of that on the Saturn Jupiter cycle. But there'll be a bunch of other astrologers like Demetra George and Mark Jones will be speaking. Stephen Forrest, uh, I can't remember everyone else, but, you know, the lovely Astrology University crew. Brilliant. That sounds yeah. great. Uh, so that's astrologyuniversity.com. What else? We we all have to start preparing pretty soon because not this month, but the month after that, we are, of course, that. going to Norwalk in Seattle, the Northwest Astrological Conference. It sounds like tickets are almost sold out for that if they're not already, and we're doing our pre-conference uh, podcast event where we're going to record a live episode of the Astrology Podcast there at Norwalk in front of an audience of up to 200 people. So we're still in the process of putting that together, but we know it's happening and it's going to be, I think, that Thursday night before the conference. May 23rd. Uh, I think it's, we've got an 8.30 p.m. kickoff time. Yeah, something like that. It's a little um, later. And I also wanted to mention that mm. Um, so Norwalk is, is definitely the big one, the, the most immediate conference that's coming up this year. But since that's about to be sold out, the other big conference this year is going to be the conference that's happening in Baltimore, uh, mm -hmm. which is the NCGR conference, the National Council for Geocosmic Research. And that conference is happening in Baltimore, Maryland, August 30th through September 3rd, 2019. And that's also going to be a great conference. So for those that can't make it to Norwalk, or if Baltimore is more in your neighborhood and more easily accessible, or you know what have you, that's a great alternative conference to attend. Uh, I'm going to be giving a talk there. Lisa's going to be giving a talk there. There's a bunch of other great astrologers who will also be. Uh, so hopefully some people can come out and join us for that. Yeah, that's supposed to be an amazing conference. I'll be in Europe, but uh, <laughs> it'll be great for anyone that's here. I'm going to have to learn about the European conferences. Yeah, well, Europe uh, in June, actually, that's a great segue because in oh, June, <laughs> I will be <laughs> following you to Europe and I will be going to the UK to give my first ever talk and workshop at the Astrological Association conference that's happening in June, um, it, not far from Cambridge, uh, yeah, in, in the UK. So that's going to be great. Uh, people can buy one day passes. They asked me to remind you. So if you just want to come in and only see my lecture, uh, that's totally fine. <laughs> Uh, or if you just want to come in and see somebody else's lecture, that's totally cool as well. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of podcast listeners and other people from the UK as I give workshops on perfections, zodiac releasing, and a keynote lecture on uh, the history of astrology. Very nice. That's very prestigious. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, so I'll be getting some tips from you, Kelly, uh, about that. Somebody's asking about the URL the of the conference. And it looks like the URL is astrologicalassociation.com. And there you can find the page that's for the 2019 conference, and it gives all of the information about it. So I'm also 
actually, I just remembered also going to give a workshop in Romania the week before, and I'm still working out the details of that, but I should have it announced sometime pretty soon with the main astrological organization that's in Romania. I'm going to give a workshop on uh, mitigating conditions in birth charts. Oh, that'll be that interesting. That sounds very cool. Definitely. So, How did you get hooked up with that? Uh, they've been the the Romania group when my book came out on Hellenistic astrology. They've had a very good, thriving community for traditional astrology there, and for Hellenistic astrology, especially over the past decade or two, past couple of decades. And they were super excited and super supportive when my book on Hellenistic astrology came out two years ago. And they ordered like a few boxes boxes of them to you know deliver to their members when it was released so it was one of the main groups that i remember being super excited and they've been wanting to have me out for years but i kept putting it off while i was writing the book but now that i'm finally flying out to the uk and I'll already be sort of roughly in the area uh, i figured i would might as well take another stop to go over there and meet up with them and give a talk absolutely i wasn't quite sure exactly where romania is on the map but i have familiarized myself now oh carpathian uh, mountains yeah, just kind of south of Poland and south east of Germany, I guess. Uh, yeah. Amazing. So, yeah, so look, if you're already in the UK, it's just going to be a couple hours on the plane. Yeah, totally. So I'm hoping to do that, and I might try to do some interviews while I'm in Europe with some different astrologers and spend a little time there. Uh, yeah. So I'll put links up to that probably in the description page on the astrologypodcast.com website. That way, if people want to check it out, they can f find the URL there. So that's the stuff I have going on. And otherwise, I've just been releasing bonus content for the Astrology Podcast. Lisa and I just recorded the last episode here in our current studio and released uh, episode 20 of the Casual Astrology Podcast, which is available to patrons through our page on Patreon, which is like a private casual podcast that we release once a month. So that was fun, and now we're getting ready to move, and we'll be recording episode 200 uh, next week. So I actually have a question. I'm trying to figure out what to do for episode 200, and it's a choice between doing like a best of or some sort of retrospective on the past 200 episodes, or even doing like a poll for people to like vote on what are the top, let's say, 10 or 20 episodes. Or alternatively, a bunch of people have asked me to do like a biographical or some sort of interview with me about the podcast or something like that. I think one of you said, "Yeah, I like that yeah, idea. I think said. someone should interview you." Yeah, I've been thinking that for a while. And when you mentioned like you need something special for two, episode two hundred, I'm like, "Yeah, somebody needs to interview you." Yeah, well, I wish I could bring you two out here, like me, like fly you guys out here to do that. But that would be sure next week. We'll just grab flights. <laughs> yeah, just fly, fly out. Over. Uh, we'll have to pass around some sort of collection plate for that. But anyways, I'll figure that out pretty soon because that's literally the first episode of April has to be episode two hundred. Two hundred. Okay. Um, and then after that, I'll be interviewing Kim Farnell about her new book on Alan Leo, which I'm really stoked about, and it should be a good month. So fantastic. Yeah. Is there any other pre show stuff that we meant to talk about? What's been going on over the past month? Is there any like news and events in the community that's relevant? Um, I'm trying to think like books that have come out or discussions in the community. You got anything, Austin? Well, I haven't really been paying attention to um, online. I see people on Twitter um, complaining about Kieran. Um, there was Ben Dyke's book, but you, you spent quite a bit of time talking with Ben about that. 
Um, yeah, really amazing book. I highly recommend getting it. And what is the title of that? Uh, it is actually my print copy right here, which I actually got. It's The Astrology of Solid Ben Bisher, Volume 1, Principles, Elections, Questions, and Nativities. The guy literally learned Arabic so he could translate this book um, over the past decade, and now he's knows Arabic very well, and he's just translating stuff like crazy. But this book with Saul, like what's important about it is Saul is the one of the first first or second generations of medieval astrologers. And what's bizarre, and I didn't see until Ben translated this from Arabic, is he actually had a translation of Rhetorius as well as a translation of Dorotheus and parts of Valens. So when you read this book, there's parts of it that look very much very Hellenistic, like he's paraphrasing parts of Rhetorius almost directly. And so you realize that the first generation of astrologers writing in Arabic were basically like practicing Hellenistic astrology. There were certainly some changes to it early on, but it's so similar to Rhetorius and stuff that there's much more continuity in the early medieval tradition than I realized. Nice. That sounds like an important linkage. Yeah, it definitely is. And it has been also has an important and interesting discussion about house division where Saul is identifying and recognizing both whole sign houses and quadrant houses, and he's trying to reconcile them and seems to have specific term terms or terminology that he's using when he refers to whole sign houses versus quadrant houses. So there may be some resolution there. There's also some interesting stuff about the void of course moon and how we ended up with at least three different definitions of void of course moon. The answer to that may be partially in Seoul. So lots of cool stuff. Yeah, I'm really excited to get my hands on a copy. I mean, I have a bit of a reading stash that I'm still making my way through. Uh, but actually, I did sort of have a question for Austin that I got from reading your book, Chris. Um, my my book? Yeah, your book. How did my, that happen? It's actually under my flowers. Um, my book, Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, available in bit, fine bookstores everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. A bit dog-eared. Um, but it was because the course I'm teaching online right now is on career and life direction, and we've got a lot of focus on the midheaven mm. in the chart. And I was really fascinated to read in your book, Chris, about, I believe it's, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's your book. Um, the concept of the four angles was probably developed first before the concept and kind of structure of the 12 houses themselves. Yeah, and that's a suspicion that I have. I think it's something that some of the academics also assume, but there's like a couple good arguments for why that might be the case. One of them is that in Dorotheus and the earliest electional authors, they almost focus only exclusively on the four angles and they almost just don't mention the other houses at all. Yeah. And then there's a sentence that goes on to say, um, one of the reasons that this could be is that the ancient Egyptians placed a lot of emphasis on the rising and the culminating decans in the chart. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and I was and curious and setting. So, Austin, is that something that you had come across in your research as well? I just thought that was fascinating, like the idea of the decan that the midheaven is in or the decan that the ascendant is in. It sounds like a no-brainer, but I just hadn't quite pulled that together conceptu conceptually or interpretively, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm a bit worried now, of course, because I've looked up the decan of my midheaven and I'm, you know, got to think about a few things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not to infect people, um, only with good things. Yeah, and you, you'll see you'll see some health and appearance stuff with the rising decan um, in some of the older texts. It's, um, you know, they they are faces, you know, and so they 
They they do a good. Yeah. <laughs> not available in fine bookstores anywhere. Can't get this one. Lucky oh, yeah. if you've got a copy. <laughs> Actually, only avi- uh, only available in in the the finest and behind uh, behind glass for maximum price. <laughs> It'll be out again. I promise. Sometime. Sometime. Where, where is it available? Is like William or somebody up in Seattle have one behind glass, or where is that? Um. Yeah. I mean, there. Um. I. I'm, I, I I don't know <laughs> I don't know who has them right now and is okay, willing to okay. sell them. I'm sure yeah, I'm I'm sure um Mortlake and Company has uh, up in Seattle probably has a copy or two. I remember seeing I think two of them at the Texts and Traditions conference last year. Um but the uh the standard paperback will be out again before too awful long. No promises uh as far as dates right now. Um, it's been a little bit complicated figuring out second edition stuff while figuring out the rest of work and life, but it's happening. Yeah, because you're not just like republishing it. You have to. You're redoing all the illustrations and everything in it. I I think so. And there are also oh, wow. there's some there's some there's some I've learned some things. You know, I wrote that in 2013, yeah. and so you know when you write a book about something and you give away everything that you know, um, you uh you often end up sort of i don't know creating an uh an emptiness into which yes. much pours so i've i've learned quite a bit and i've found some more sources that i would like to include in the next edition et cetera. Et cetera. so you know when i that's fantastic yeah well it's you know that's that's how it goes absolutely like... well, we so talking, talking about the angles um i mean because that's if you think about it the four angles are the things that are just astronomically apparent, and that's the foundation of the entire house system, any house system to begin with, that you have the rising where you can see the the sun and the moon and the other planets rise over the eastern horizon each day. You have the the culmination above head, however you define that in terms of the midheaven where the planets are either at their highest uh, in the sky or where the zodiac hits its highest point of arc in the sky, depending on what house system you're using. You have the setting where the planets and the sun and moon and everything else set underneath the earth each day, and then you have the anti-culmination where they get to their lowest point. So those those are like independent astronomical things mm. where you can look and observe them and then almost draw symbolic meaning from just what that actually looks like in the sky and what it might mean symbolically as it relates to a person's life. And then all of the houses that were then developed after that are derived from those as the basic framework in either the planets are moving away from the angles or they're moving up towards the angles, and that becomes the cadent and succeedant houses, and so everything ultimately is derived from the angles, and that's part of the argument for those preceding everything else uh, on some level. Yeah, well, and I mean, they certainly, I, 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 because they're all visual and they require, they don't even require the ability to count to two, literally, all you have to do is look and say, and yeah. watch the sky, and okay, that's rising, that's setting, and oh, it's getting higher, it's getting higher, oh, now it's starting to come down. And so, you know, um, a visual recognition of the angles is something that um, almost certainly precedes any written record, because it requires nothing but but an understanding of up, of up and down, Yeah. right? Right. Yeah. So what were you... You were just re- reviewing that, just yeah, finding that interesting. I, mean, I just found that really fascinating because I was just reviewing 
the literature, the historical lineage, if you like, whenever I teach on something, I just like to read all the books that I can on it just to make sure I haven't missed anything. Maybe it's the paranoid person in me. Um, but other times it's, you know, I just like to hear other people's take on it. And I just thought it was fascinating. I hadn't, I, I mean, as much as it, like, oh, that makes complete sense that the angles would have come before the houses. I don't think I'd stopped to actually think about that before. Um, and, you know, that idea with, um, say, Holstein houses and the angles, you know, because a question that students often have is, you know, how does the midheaven versus the 10th house work? So I wanted to really pull in, just make sure I had as deep an understanding as I possibly could on the midheaven itself and its significance, which, you know, as you've really articulated clearly, well, you did in your book, Chris, and Austin, you did today around it's just the visual phenomenon of the culminating, you know, it's up as high as it's going to go. And the symbolism of that, I think, is really beautiful. And then I hadn't even, I didn't know about the ancient Egyptians focusing on the decans of the angles, if you like, and that forming part of their interpretive piece. And that makes great sense because those angles are, you know, really tied into that ancient Egyptian kind of cycle of life and death um, placed or overlaid onto the daily cycle, if you like. Right. Yeah. The easy way to remember it is just that basically the Egyptians developed the precursor, the thing that would eventually lead to the concept of the 12 houses, and the Mesopotamians developed the concept of the 12 sign zodiac. And then when those two traditions were merged around the first century BCE, that's when you get basically what we recognize as Western astrology, which uses mm. both the houses and the signs of the zodiac together as two separate reference systems that then get merged together in an astrological chart. Just beautiful. Yeah, so we'll have like to talk poetic. about that more in yeah. our upcoming episode one of these days on the significations of the 12 houses, which I mentioned as an idea last oh, month. Yeah. And that generated actually a lot of excitement because there's a lot of people that would definitely like to see that episode. So we'll have to talk about doing that at some point. Um, I think we're both on board, but maybe yeah. in the second half of the year. Yeah, it's a big, big thing to do just as our episode on our two episode series on the signs of the zodiac was, but it'll be fun whenever we get to it. Oh, it'll be fantastic. Sure. Only, well, I'm not that not trying to like blow our own trumpet. That might have come out wrong, but it'll be really fun to do. <laughs> is what I meant. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was good. Um, that new Picatrix translation came out, and I haven't gotten a chance to read through it a lot yet. But I'm kind of excited about that. Have you gotten that, Austin? No, I haven't gotten it yet. Um, I've read several reviews. Um, I understand that it's useful. There's not really much there that's um, that's not in the Warnock-Greer. There's a little bit of academic framing, um, which as a practitioner is interesting to me, but not necessarily of vital importance. I am personally holding my breath for the new uh, translation of the Picatrix from the Arabic, which should be coming out later this year. Um, there's a, oh, I forget the woman's name, but I follow her on Twitter and she gives um, uh, uh, some sweet updates on it because that's that's something that we don't have. Yeah, you know, we, we have super... the Ouroboros, which was a heroic first effort, um, but we need more, and she's doing that, and I'm excited for it. Yeah, I have also been following her on Twitter. I think her name is Lena Sayef, uh, but she was actually posting like updates as she was translating the Picatrix mm -hmm. from Arabic. So you could see her progress, especially as she was finishing up. And I remember seeing the final tweet within the past month or two that she had 
translated the final page. So that'll be really interesting to see. Uh, somebody asked me a question about that recently, which is actually kind of funny, which is like the ethics of like using a text like that where sometimes it's doing kind of dark or sometimes quasi or maybe even overtly like unethical things because we're talking about like a medieval text on magic and um, the how to deal with sometimes, I don't know, astrology that's like verging into questionable territory. And I didn't have, it's been a while since I read Warnock's translation of the Picatrix to remember all of the areas that were kind of the, the occasional area that was kind of sketchy, but it was an interesting kind of question to contemplate. Uh, have you thought about that, Austin, in terms of that text or others? Um, sure. There's actually a little, um, you know, there's uh, there's a fair amount of astrological magic in 36 faces. And so there's actually a little little ethical note in there. Um, you know, the, the thing is, you can't learn astrological magic without uh, and only learn how to do um, good things, uh, helpful, entirely pure things like that's, you know, um, it's like having a body. You know, if you have a body, then you are capable of doing good, evil, and everything in between. Um, you know, it. I guess you could leave out every part that mentions Mars or Saturn. <laughs> um, but you know, the 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 ethics of it, or the moral, the morality, or the moral choices are in the. Those are those are practitioners' choices. You know, um, I don't know. Um, it it is it is what it is. That's yeah. like well, it, you know, it sometimes, you know, we need knives to cut food. You can stab someone with a knife. If you're the kind of person who gets a steak knife and says, oh, I'm going to go stab a bunch of people. Well, you're an asshole. Um, <laughs> it doesn't mean we, we shouldn't make knives. I don't, you know, there's, there's no way around it. Um, you know, and it's one of the reasons people have been nervous about magic forever. Um, mm. is because it's a form of power that you can't wholly control. Um, and it's um, very difficult to regulate by the state. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's astrology, electional astrology, and astrology in general, mm -hmm. which is that, it, that you can do things with it, but sometimes there's not an inherent thing that it's always going to be positive, or there are ways to misuse it, or um, either inadvertently cause harm, or, or you know, potentially somebody could you know uh, overtly cause harm, or even deliberately cause harm just because it has some power to it. it. It is a power and the way in which it gets used is determined by the user, essentially. I mean, the knife image is something I use in that uh, way too when teaching Austin. The knife could be the scalpel in the surgeon ha surgeon's hands that's going to cut out something that's toxic or killing you, or it can stab you through the heart. It's the same tool just used for different purposes. Yeah. And yeah. And, and it, in many ways, Material like uh, such as found in the Picatrix is it makes how should we say it makes more obvious some of the moral questions which are inherent in an astrology that actually works. You know, if you have electional astrology that actually works, um, then you can bring success to people who um, you think are doing you know who are doing evil in the world. Right, right. So, because well, that's yeah. funny when it comes to like political astrology and stuff, like because mm -hmm. you get into a subjective 
a little bit of a subjective area there in terms of like who 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 you're deeming to be doing things that are unethical or that is a misapplication of astrology. Like if somebody uses electional astrology that's from like an opposing political party that you agree with in order to make their candidate win, you know, is that unethical or something? Or you think that's wrong? You know, obviously that's a much more neutral or questionable argument to make, but I don't know. I was just thinking about like Reagan in the 1980s. Supposedly, his astrologer wrote that she used electional astrology in the debates, but the way that she used it is she said that she deliberately went out of her way to pick a date for the debates that would be bad for her opponent mm-hmm. or, or for the for Reagan's opponent, who was Jimmy Carter. So she was almost like looking for a bad astrological day and made that the electional date of the debate. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And even to take this down to um, psychologically oriented or astrology or psychodynamic astrology. You know, if you understand, this, uh, if you use astrology, this is my cat Merlin saying hi. Sorry. Oh no worries. Uh, if if you use astrology to understand what a person's weak and wounded parts are psychologically, yes, that can be used in a therapeutic context. Um, but it's also um, exactly the information that uh, a cruel and manipulative person would want. And no doubt, uh, the same tools have been used to manipulate people as have been used to heal people. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's the problem of power. Yes. Yeah, and this actually brought up a discussion that I saw a lot of the younger astrologers having on Twitter a few weeks ago when there was one new, very new astrologer who's apparently doing readings now, and she had some sort of conflict with a client, and then in a live like Instagram stream said something <gasps> yes. about the client's background or like mental health status. Divulged private information from the session in a public right. forum. Which just led to like huge public backlash from other contemporary astrologers, especially in her generation. And what was productive in that it also led to a lot of discussions about ethics and about ethical guidelines that are in the astrological community and what's appropriate versus what's not. And Probably a lot of younger astrologers in their teens and twenties learned more about the fact that some of the astrological organizations have specific ethical guidelines at this point about what is appropriate in practice versus what's against the rules and what could get you kicked out of an astrological organization um, if you violate some of those guidelines very strongly. And that would be like an instance of that. But this is probably like part of a broader discussion about astrological. Um, ethics, I guess. Yeah, and it's an important conversation to for the community to be having that astrology is a little different from other therapeutic practices like counseling or therapy or what have you in that there is an initial quite strong perceived power imbalance between the astrologer and the client in that the perception is that the astrologer has some sort of wisdom or knowledge about the person and you know it's not that that's not true but that straight away when we we sit in session with a client we are in a power position and you have to be incredibly aware of the dynamics around that uh and honoring it you know to to what you guys are saying i mean there is a power even if you're not explicitly doing planetary magic or picatrix level invocations just the art of sharing astrology in a very intimate space where it's like i'm not just talking about the general astro weather you're talking to a human being about specific astrology for them and their journey that's a very sacred and privileged place to go in that was horrible what came out on twitter 
about that particular individual and how their confidence was violated by this astrologer, basically. Yeah, and I think I I mean it was it could have been worse. Luckily, I mean I don't want to like name the person or anything, but and I think the backlash from the community and also the discussions that it generated were useful. Um, hopefully, the one astrologer learned something from that and will never do anything like that again. But also, I think it was a nice um, learning lesson for the community in general, in terms of there being some like standards and norms that sometimes get enforced by the community itself and by like reactions from fellow practitioners if you really cross a line and that some to some extent is the reinforcement or, or is the enforcement in the community in terms of adhering to some like baseline level of professional uh, guidelines yeah i don't know the idea that somebody wouldn't um uh, that somebody would violate the inherent privacy of a mm. consultation is, I wouldn't say mind blowing because there are lots of stupid people out there. Um, but if you even need to be told that, then you shouldn't be practicing astrology or most things involving people. Like, obviously, you shouldn't it's be all working one on one. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it, it is. And even to the extent that if you take the therapeutic definition of privacy, it goes beyond just not disclosing what's discussed in a session and right up to the level of not even disclosing who your clients are. So that if the client wants to say, oh, I had a reading with so-and-so, the client can say whatever they want. They're allowed to share. It's their, it's their information. It's their privacy. But as the practitioner, not even saying, you know, this person's my client unless they say something in a public forum first. Yeah. So Yeah, or not course. sharing birth data, birth data being part of you know, patient or client confidentiality. Confidentiality, yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that that astrologers take for granted. But I do think it was important because I think some astrologers probably for the first time opened up and read some of those ethical guidelines. And sometimes if you haven't read them bef before and you're not coming from a psychological or counseling background, there can be stuff in there that you don't realize are guidelines that you need to be aware of. So I think that was productive in that sense, at least. Um, and the other yeah. thing, just to take it back to the original discussion about it's not just magic, but electional astrology is that sometimes there are elections where, like using the malefics, for example, constructively, or what it would be like to pick a chart where you make Mars in a day chart the ruler of the ascendant, or like Saturn in a night chart the ruler of the ascendant, and some of the potential for problematic things, or using an election where like Mercury Neptune conjunction, like we have going on right now. And both constructive ways to use that, as well as ways where somebody might use that in a way that's like questionable. Um, there's the potential for for using astrology in ways that are not always as constructive or positive as we immediately assume. But it's almost kind of useful for an astrologer to think through some of those different possibilities as part of their training to be aware of it. Um, and I'm trying to think of like some other. Analogies like in in like the Harry Potter universe, like they have like the training in the dark arts or defense yeah. against the dark arts class or something yes. like that. Yep, yeah, because I think that's a really good point that you make, Chris. And the Harry Potter is a wonderful reference, right? Yeah, that's um, a great way to. It is. It is because field. they're learning magic, but they're also learning that there is a dark side or a shadow side, or there is a way that what they're learning can be used for negative outcomes. And there probably isn't enough discussion around that in astrology today that 
you know, there's a lot of sacred power that we've got, but we could, people could do some very nasty things with it if they were so inclined. Um, so at least to be aware that that's there. Yeah. Or yeah. what do you want to say, Austin? You, you have some well, reservations or what? Well, I, I just don't, I, I'm sure there are, there are like overtly destructive things you can do. Um, but it's just part of the whole thing. Like, you know, if you elect so that you get the job, then that means that other people didn't get the job. You know, one's per- one person's success in a competitive field is other people's not success. And I, right. I, do, I do think That's it's true. I do think it's important. You know, I, I do think it's important not to get into moral, like not get not to get into pearl clutching about it, like. You know, astrology provides a real advantage, and people who have an advantage have an advantage over those who don't have that advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, well, that's not pearl clutching, but it's. Still I'm not, I'm not just... saying you were, but I, 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 I feel like, um, you know, the oh, there, there's a dark side to it. It's not like the positive side is the dark side. The fact that you can elect so that great success will happen um, for you, <laughs> um, again, in a in a competitive situation, is bad. You know, is not success for someone else and so like that's not that's not a dark art you're trying to create something good you're trying to create a benefic situation it's not you know it's not like you're you're calling the with the dementors <laughs> to, yeah. right. to, to attack yes. other people um but you're it. still you know you're still aiming to win while some while instead of other people and so yeah. no, it's just part of the deal it, it is part of the deal. And actually, I'm like, oh, my God, we've probably all done this because I'm sure we've all elected times to sign agreements like buying houses or signing leases and things like that. And, you know, in those instances, we're essentially trying to pick a time that puts us in a more favorable position than the other person. Now, maybe the other person does want the deal done. But, you know, of course, you always weight it towards you getting the better outcome. So that that's kind of what you're saying, Austin, is, is that in a competition where there's you versus someone else, if you're trying to get yourself to come out ahead, the other person is potentially coming off second best. Right. Even if yeah. the the intention is to create a good in your life. Yeah. Uh, which well, but rem- there's, there's different scenarios even with that. There is, there's like, you know, there's a scenario where it is mutually beneficial or almost even mm-hmm. between two parties. Then there's a scenario where it's like, it's not mutually beneficial, but instead you win out and the other person is not in a better in, in as good of a footing in that scenario. Or there's the other one where you set it up so that the other par- party, like the seventh house benefits and you, the first house, is in the, the worst position and, and not benefiting as much. So there's different just the realization mm. that there are different scenarios in terms of that and it doesn't have to be, I don't know, mutually beneficial or what have you. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. I mean, this is great. It makes me think of, um, I was looking over Ben's uh, translation of Dorotheus the other day, um, and there's some interesting electional models he has, like for a real estate transaction, where one house is, you know, is your situation, the other house is their situation, you know, the one is the buyer's situation, one is the seller's situation, one is the, one is like a mutual place, and one is general outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is that there aren't enough benefics to go around, and I don't. I don't know many astrologers who elect specifically so that somebody else gets the better side of a real estate deal. Uh-uh. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I had an so we're, we're signing a lease. We had um, a lease signing option for because with electional astrology, like sometimes there's different, there's multiple 
times where like potential charts that you could use as the electional chart, and sometimes it's not always clear which one to go with. So Lisa and I in electional astrology, we usually just try to like hedge our bets and like get decent electional charts for each one we can during different parts of the process. So we had like three different charts, and one of them was like contacting the company in order to initiate looking into getting the place. The other was like signing the lease on the place, which is a binding contract for taking whatever possession of it. And the other was the first day that we move in and like first walk into the place now it being ours and sort of owning it. And we had different like setups for that. We we decided in the electional chart that only the mutable signs rising seemed to provide a good rising sign for this week or for that date. And we could have put like Jupiter, uh, the Moon Jupiter conjunction that's happening in like the first house, which represents you, mm-hmm. the tenth house, which represents the action, the seventh house, which represents the other party, or the fourth house, which represents the outcome, or sometimes in this situation, like your actual living situation. Um, and so sometimes you do have questions like that about which one you put it towards, and sometimes weighting it more towards one or the other. Yeah. Uh, just because there could be a scenario where you have to put the stuff in the seventh house so that it's somehow benefiting the other party if you're trying to avoid, let's say, putting the malefics in the second house and losing fun- money on yourself or something like that. Like there are scenarios where occasionally you might have to like weight things more in the other party's side on some sense in order to avoid some worse like drawback or something for yourself. Certainly. Okay. All right. So anyway, that's a whole other thing about electional astrology and um yeah, like the question of sometimes like how to use malefics constructively in an electional chart sometimes or when to make a malefic like the ruler of the ascendant depending on what you're trying to do. All right. So, um that was it in terms of discussion topics. I know a few people had asked about Chiron and Chiron what happened like Chiron changed signs recently or something like that. Yeah, yeah went, I think it moved into Aries. Yeah, it went back into Aries. Okay, so I don't, I don't really use Chiron at this point in my practice over the past decade. Uh, do you guys use it? No, no. Kelly says no. Austin, I take note of it if it's. Um, I've noticed that if it's conjoined a, uh, if it's conjoined a significant point in the natal chart, it often is meaningful. Um, or if it is conjunct some part of somebody's business um, by transit, it's often you know it often describes part of what's going on. Um, mm. I don't I don't use it like a planet, like I don't really draw aspects to it, um, uh, other than the conjunction. But yeah, I do use it. So okay. more like a fixed star, Austin, with the conjunction. Yeah, yeah, it, you know it's it's a. Um, in the yeah in in the sense that i only use the conjunction you know obviously it's you know it's running around the zodiac so it's not like yeah, a fixed star yeah it's not star. quite as potent it do, it, as a fixed it doesn't, star yeah it doesn't have um immortal fire no yeah, those stars are pretty magical um and so chiron so yeah it's like i recognize that asteroids can signify things sometimes symbolically but it's just like not up there in list of priorities for me it's so far down the list that practically speaking i hardly ever integrate stuff like that um is that kind of where you're coming from as well kelly or or are there other asteroids that you do uh, it's not use an more regularly what do you call no, it no it's kind of this weird thing on its own yeah it's a planetoid 
it's, it's not, not part of the asteroid belt. It's between okay. the orbits of Saturn and Uranus. And Uranus, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I I mean the the funny thing is that my very first professional talk was actually on Chiron. Ooh. When I when I was a wee little baby pre-Saturn return astrologer. And I think I managed to insult everyone who was over the age of 50 in the audience because of my complete immaturity. <laughs> uh, and Chris Turner has a wonderful story about that. But that's a story for another time. So I definitely have worked with Chiron in the past, but I have not worked with it lately. As I got more traditional and more into things like dignities and planetary strengths, the include the extra that I prefer or enjoy using more are the fixed stars. So I don't really work with asteroids or planetoids um, in my own practice personally. But, I mean, I have students that do or clients that do, and and that's fine. I just say this is how I would interpret based on my approach. Um, So I I think the – I mean, the asteroids and and Chiron, I always think it would be interesting to look a little bit more at that, but I I really enjoy the working process, I guess, that I've got now that I'm good with that. Okay. That makes so, sense. Yeah. Um, so does does Austin want to share anything about Chiron, maybe? <laughs> and remind me before we fully transition into the uh, forecast that there's two major announcements I completely forgot to do, and then we'll get into like next month. Okay. Okay. So, um, well, you know, if neither of y'all really use it, I don't know that um, there's that much to talk about. Yeah, I use it. Um, I do think that it has a meaningful. Um, meaningful overlap with the what some people call the wounded healer archetype. Um, I also I I see it primarily bringing to the forefront issues uh, issues around um, difficulty with embodiment or identification. Um, when I see um psychologically it seems to show areas that there's an anxiety spike and that the person is very uncomfortable in um both by transit and conjunction um when i see it physically it's almost always issues that are not um uh the the quote the wounds that are often associated with chiron um seem to be uh how should we say uh, they they seem to stem from a difficulty in inhabiting or identifying with a particular body part. I think of one reading I did many years ago, which I thought was such a good example, which was Chiron and Gemini in the sixth. Um, and the person had an undiagnosable um, lung condition. And the only thing that uh, produced significant results in terms of healing it was doing biofeedback, where they had to learn to take conscious control of their breathing. Um, and so when there's an issue indicated by Kiran, especially when it's physical, the answer doesn't seem to be allopathic medicine, um, but a, a reconnection with that body part. So that's my, my 10 cents on, on what I've seen with Kiran. But I, I, don't, I don't look at it unless it's somewhere very significant. It's not you know one of the seven. Sure. Cool. Yeah, and I mean, it's just one of those things where every astrologer has to draw the line somewhere in terms of the points that they use and incorporate regularly. And there's somewhat of a subjective. There's something somewhat subjective to that. There's maybe some objective things you can look at, like the difference between the visible celestial or planetary bodies 
versus the invisible ones or in terms of size or, or whatever. But nonetheless, there's still some sort of subjective line that each astrologer has to figure out for themselves where they're going to draw the line just in terms of their personal practice and what's practically just the practicality of how many bodies or points or other things you're going to use. And that's why sometimes when other some astrologers will like occasionally like criticize other astrologers for not using some points, like it's kind of weird to me just because everybody draws the line somewhere. Um, like maybe you use the seven traditional planets, but you don't use the outer planets, or maybe you use the traditional planets and the outer planets, but you don't use the asteroids, or maybe you use the traditional planets, the outer planets, and the asteroids, but you don't use the Arabic parts, or maybe you use all of those, but you don't use midpoints, or yeah. you know whatever. Like it goes on, and it's ultimately endless. Like fixed stars, trans-Neptunians. If you want to get really wild, um, like the hypothetical. There's a planets. lot of extras to choose from. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. No, yeah, everybody, you have to draw a line. And I think that line should be coherence. You know, if you can't bring it all together and you don't have a sense of priority between all the different bodies, like use Kiron if you like Kiron, but don't confuse it for the moon. Yeah. Right. You right. know, like, like obviously midpoints are less significant than the planets which generate midpoints. Right. Not all the fixed stars are equally as bright or significant. You know, you gotta, mm -hmm. if you're, the more stuff you do, the more you have to have priority and the more you have to understand the relationship between all of the points you're using. Yeah. Yes. And it's hard sometimes, I'm sure, especially for newer students, because different traditions will tend to like fetishize like some specific point that they're really into. Like you have the evolutionary astrologers and the North Node or, some branches of evolutionary astrology and like Pluto and saying that that's the soul, or you have some traditional astrologers and like the part of fortune and a lot of fortune. You have some modern astrologers that do that with like Chiron uh, and so on and so forth. So I'm sure that's confusing also sometimes with some for you know, some newer students because they'll initially come in and learn some specific approach to astrology that really emphasizes some specific body or set of mm. bodies and then you go into another tradition and that's not their emphasis at all. So learning it how is, to deal with that it is, is like a learning confusing. curve. It's a massive learning curve because you tend to think your first teacher whatever, you know, your first t your, your teacher is going to teach whatever their working model is and it's very easy to think that that's the only working model or that's how everyone does it. But it's part of the reason why I think it's great for students or newer astrologers to really connect with more than one astrology teacher to get a little bit more variety in their training, not to confuse and overwhelm you, but just to show you that there are many iterations of this thing we called astrology. Now, everybody's got, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll make some blank statements here and somebody's going to correct me, but I'm, you know, everybody's going to have 12 houses of some house system in the chart. Everybody's going to use at least the seven original planets and then, you know, add on your extras as you go. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I can't emphasize enough, especially if you're becoming a professional astrologer, if you're already doing astrology professionally, to try to attend an astrology conference. And that being like for me and my my tips for learning astrology articles. And like I've done a podcast, you and Kelly and I, Kelly and I did a podcast years ago on that topic. The final thing is always like attend an astrology conference because it will just expose you to so many different approaches to astrology and so many different traditions in such a quick time span that it's a great eye opener to show you everything that astrology is in the full spectrum. In addition to like actually introducing you in person to and connecting with different practitioners. 
Yeah, and the point of having that exposure to a variety of teachers and and astrological pathways is not to overwhelm you and make you think that you actually have to know all the pathways. It's more to let you know that you can make choices about the way you want to use your astrology. So I know some students go and then they're like, but now I have to learn all these other things. It's like, no, you don't. Just see what resonates with you, what fits with your philosophy, what you feel, as you said, Austin, you can make coherent. You know, you only want to use as many tools as you can be clear and useful and insightful with. Otherwise, it's just clutter for you. And more importantly, it's clutter and overwhelm for your client. Yeah. It's like if you only knew that there was one fast food restaurant that existed and you always went to that one fast food (laughs) restaurant that you really liked, but then suddenly learned that there's a bunch of other ones that exist, like you might still always still go to that first one as your primary thing, but it might be nice yeah. to know that occasionally you can go somewhere else if you feel like it one night. Yeah, or that there's food that's not distributed through a window. <laughs> there's always that. Always that. You um, can go and have a white tablecloth experience too. <laughs> so speaking of conferences, that is the thing that I forgot is yeah, that- Yeah, two announcements. ESAR, the ESAR conference next year is about to do voting, and that's going to open up at the oh. beginning of April, right around the time. I, I told you guys not to let me forget this, and this is major I because- I forgot about it. Um, we all applied to get in to speak at the ESAR conference, which is going to be this huge conference that's going to happen, international conference happening in Denver, not this September, but next September of 2020. So it's that far in advance. It's like a year and a half in advance, and they're already planning it. But- um, a bunch of astrologers. I think. I think the limit was what, 120 or 140 astrologers. I think it was 120. Okay, and we all tried to get in. I'm not quite sure yet. If we, did we all get in? Did you get in, Austin? Yeah, my, the my my application was accepted. Okay. Okay. Good. Great. So we all three applied, but the thing is, is that ESAR wants people to campaign for this and to actually solicit votes because they're going to open it up to their membership. And now, I think in April. Um, their membership is going to be given an option to vote for who they want to see speak at this conference. And ESAR wants people to use their networks to encourage their supporters or followers to vote for them because they think that's a good indication of like how many people will actually attend their talks at a conference. And they want to make sure the people that are speaking at the conference are people that are going to draw a crowd or what have you. So um, voting for that is going to open up sometime in the next few weeks. You can find out more information about it at their website, which is esarastrology.com slash conference. And at some point there, you can, you'll can you get an email to vote if you're an ESAR member. If you're not yeah. an ESAR member, you might consider signing up and becoming a member, not just to vote, but also to get access to their monthly newsletter. They have like a quarterly print journal. And I think members will also get a discount on the conference if you're an ESAR member. So it's a good reason to sign up for that. And it's also There's, going to be here in Denver, so it's like I'll basically be hosting this thing next year. Uh, we'll all really. be staying in your spare room. Um, yeah. The, there is another advantage to signing up for an ESAR membership, which is that they now offer what's called a star club. And I think every two weeks they're doing live webinars where you can attend I don't know. I, I don't know for sure if you can attend free or just for a significantly reduced rate if you're a member. And then, of course, as a member, you get access to the back catalog of recordings. Um, and I did a talk for them early in March on progressions. Um, yeah. So, but of course, then you can vote whether you vote for us or someone else that you love. I don't know that you could love anyone more than us, but maybe you love them as much as you love us. Who knows? Um, but you can definitely vote because that's important to 
how people get selected to speak. Yeah, you can literally pick out like the program that you would want to see if you were to attend an astrology conference and all the lectures you would like to attend. So uh, that's a pretty good opportunity. So check that out at esarastrology.org. Finally, the other announcement I forgot to announce is there's this new astrology card deck that's being funded right now, and the deadline's about to end because they're funding it through a Kickstarter. And it's actually really cool. It's called Astro Essentia, an astrology oracle deck. And it's a 36 card oracle deck and guidebook depending astrological archetypes through collage type imagery for learning and for sort of divination. So the artist is an astrologer named Courtney Saul, and she's funding this through Kickstarter. So it's like a cool way to fund an astrology project. And right now they have not met their deadline or their goal, and the funding goal ends on April 1st. So if they get funded, this deck gets printed up and it'll be really nice. And if it does not get funded, then nothing happens, I guess. So uh, people can check that out um, on their website, which is astroessentia.com. I'll put a link on the description page uh, on the Astrology Podcast website. And for those watching the video version, here's a nice little image of it. I really like their illustrations, their collage illustrations of the houses. And I think it's kind of a good learning tool for like learning the meanings of the houses, as well as the planets and other things like that. Uh, had you seen this, Kelly? I hadn't seen it, no, but it does look very colorful and very vibrant. Um, it seems to be, um, not that everybody's doing it, but I did know um, of Ash Benelli, who I think is behind the Zodi deck, um, which is another deck collection that has come out just in the last month or so, I think. Yeah, I actually loved that deck and I found it late because they also did a Kickstarter and I wish I had seen it before it had closed, but you can find that deck at zodicollective.com or just do a Google search for like Zodi cards or Zodi Collective and you should find it. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, different imagery on those two. So I guess depending on what your visual taste is, your own aesthetics, but uh, yeah, they're both really interesting. And it's just, it's so exciting to see people coming up with tangible products to share astrology, but also to see that innovation and that creativity in the astrological community, because this is all part of the business offerings, if you like, within our field. I know. I'm actually really excited about that because um, there's just a ton of cool like astrology swag and like physical products that are coming out lately with the popularity of astrology going through the roof. Like I got this cool Wooden uh, woodworking thing of my birth chart that was sent to me recently that I'll have to show you guys Fantastic. at some point. There's another astrologer I found on Instagram the other last week who has been printing up hats with like the planetary glyphs on them, and I got a couple like like, so like a Saturn. I could have like a Venus hat. Yeah, well, I got like and a Uranus Austin one and Mars. a Saturn one to help propitiate the Uranus transit into my fourth house, and I think it's working out so far. Uh, I'll have to wear that in upcoming. Um, episode of the astrology podcast, but yeah, yeah, you could get like a Venus one. The there's an astrologer out in Newfoundland, Elodie, who is just gorgeous, and she made a comment on Facebook recently that astrology is the new yoga, and I thought that was really interesting in terms of just reflecting how much astrology is sort of exploding into sort of mainstream consciousness or awareness in the way that yoga did, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So whether that's good or bad, but I think all of this swag is coming through because there's obviously more of a demand for it. So, Yeah. And you can see the one I was just talking about. They've got like beanies and stuff at astrologyapparel.com. And I think they recently changed the 
URL, so it may not show up in search results, but just search for astrologyapparel.com. Can you guys see this? Oh my god, that's fantastic! Yeah, like I got the Saturn and the Uranus hats already, but I think she's working on a Mercury one for me. I'm going to uh, make a request for something in pink. Totally. Uh, and she also has a nice uh, Instagram page there as well. So oh, very cool. Do you want a hat? You wear like a Neptune hat or something, Austin? No, I've got, uh, I'm done with Neptune. Neptune's been on my son for like a year and a half. I'm so over it. It was fun. Right. It was fun for six months, but um, Neptune is overstayed as welcome. It's welcome, her welcome, their welcome, whatever Neptune is. Well, speaking of that, I think that is a great uh, segue into the talking about the astrology of April and getting into the forecast section of this podcast. Love it. So uh, was we are smooth. coming out of, we are just days away from starting at the beginning of April. I think the starting point has to be the Mercury retrograde in Pisces that's been happening all of March. And it's finally stationing direct here at the beginning of the month, uh, conjunct Neptune. So that is, that is basically what we're opening up the end of March with and the, and the beginning of April with, right? Yeah. I mean, technically Mercury stations direct on March 28th. But it is still in Neptune's clutches until the 2nd of April. So, I mean, talk about Neptune overstaying his welcome. Here is the chart for right now. I mean, I even have Mercury in Pisces and I'm done with this. So, it's... What did you call the month of March earlier, Austin? You just said retrograde month. I think that's a great term for... Yeah. Oh, well, and there's such a there's such a contrast between March and April in part because of um because of March basically being, you know, the the Mercury Mercury stationed on what is it on the 6th of March and is stationing direct at the end of March. Mercury's basically retrograde the whole month. And totally. we had Mars and Taurus the whole month. And Mars, you know, Mars and Taurus may have some virtues, but speed um, mm -mm. is not one of them. And so, you know, what's interesting is uh, April begins with Mercury finally direct and Mars having just moved into Gemini. And so that's a, there's a huge contrast there between retrograde Mercury and Mars and Taurus for March and Mercury direct and then Mercury and then Mars in a Mercury ruled sign in the most, in the more active uh, manic <laughs> of the two Mercury signs um, pushing things forward. And that Mars in Gemini is especially significant um, because the as April begins, uh, we have the sun in Aries. And so we have the sun in a Mars ruled sign. And so Mars, Mars is Mars, the sign that Mars is in is obviously significant there, right? So we have Mars in manic Gemini for the whole month and more. And then later on, we'll get Mercury and then Venus into Mars-ruled Aries. And so the, the pacing of April is, in many ways, the complete opposite of the pacing for March. Yeah, we're yeah. moving away from all the wateriness. We're getting away from all of the like Neptune and the Mercury retrograde and moving into much more dynamic like fire and air signs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and just in talking about air, we haven't had anything other than the moon and air signs. Um, except for, you know, poor Venus and Aquarius for March. Um, and so, you know, we have a much more active dynamic air with Mars, much more active dynamic planet in an air sign with Mars and Gemini 
I mean, you know, no hate for uh, Venus and Aquarius. I have Venus and Aquarius, but, um, you know, it just wasn't in position to speed anything along. No, I didn't have the extra help. And I'm totally with you on this, Austin. The, the symbolism of Mars moving into Gemini, which, you know, happens technically on the last day of March. So we're going to feel it as we come into the month of April there's a lightness, there's an increase in mobility and movement because air is so much more mobile than earth. And that idea of things being sped up or going a lot faster. But of course, we now have the caution about scattering ourselves and trying to do, you know, we can be so excited that whatever delay or barrier or stuckness has shifted that we come out of the gate with 25 things we're trying to do all at once. So that's probably you know, the other side of the coin, but it's, it is generally just going to feel lighter and like things are happening more quickly. Yeah. And I would agree uh, completely that the principal difficulty or danger or thing to watch out for with Mars and Gemini is scattering attention, scattering energy. Yeah. And I, I, I thought that um, was really relevant um, in this first week of April because we will have the new moon in Aries in that first week of April. I think it's the 5th and of course, that new moon in Aries is ruled by Mars in Gemini. So, it, it, you know, Mars is in Gemini ruling the sun, but it's also going to be the lunation ruler for that sort of couple of week period as well. So that danger or tendency to, to be scattered is, is a little bit kind of highlighted. Yeah. I mean, the, the rule of thumb I use with Gemini is like, do, do three things at once instead of six. <laughs> you know, it's not that you're supposed, you know, it's we not. say the same thing. It, yeah. You know, it's not like. You know, if you try to make it too Saturnian and boring, then you lose what power that that offers you. You know, if you try to just make it, you know, one thing and pay attention to only that, like you got to give yourself a little bit, a little bit of room to move for that energy to circulate. Um, but you do, you, you limit it, but you don't, you don't step on it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not about doing seven to 10 things. It's somewhere in the three to five range. <laughs> yeah, the multiplicity exactly. is relevant. I just, Yeah. You need a few pots on the stove, but you know, I mean, even a big stove, you know, it's, you max out at five burners basically. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Um, and one of the things that changed last month, of course, is like Uranus went into Taurus. I mean, oh, yeah? have you guys yeah. seen it, have any reflections on that so far? I mean, we already obviously talked about that last month and we've talked about it in previous months. Um, but I mean, I already started noticing major changes, of course, with it going into my fourth house and like suddenly moving. One of the things I wanted to point out, because it's a useful interpretive principle that I saw happen again in my own life, but it, it works just in general, is that we always we kept talking about how last year Uranus dipping into Taurus would act like a preview of some of the transits that would come up when Uranus finally moved into Taurus this year for the final time, and there might be some sort of connection. And what I realized in retrospect was that last fall when Uranus was was going through Taurus, and I think when it stationed, I initially started thinking about moving when it first went into my fourth house, but then decided it wasn't time to and I needed to wait a few months. Um, and then as soon as it went back in this month, um, I started getting the idea again, but this time I realized it was time to move and now I'm actually moving. So there was like a formal connection between one period and another just based on a planet first dipping into a house and then leaving and then coming back. And you can sometimes see that with retrogrades, especially outer planet retrogrades that connect like long spans of time. Did you guys have anything like that or was that just me? Yeah, I had a really obvious did. one. Kelly, you want to go yeah. ahead? 
Oh, no, you go, Austin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So last year, Kate and I um, made an offer on some land and it didn't end up happening. Um, and this was after Uranus's ingress into Taurus. And then this year, um, it looks like we're going to offer on a house in the same town that we'd offered on land on last year. And that's just come up since uh, Uranus went back into Taurus a couple weeks ago. Just in the last few weeks. That's amazing. And I, I'm, you know, I'm amazed because all of us have these stories about moving and it, it sort of clues me into the like the Taurus land earth connection. You know, it's not just about, you know, environmental or monetary or food factors. It's literally, I think, in some ways, which land are you physically present to or connected to? Because uh, we had the same thing last summer, mid 2018. Um, <laughs> I had a little bit of a temper tantrum. And mentioned to my husband that I just, you know, was not going to be able to do another 10 years of Ontario winters, which is basically like very extreme winters. And I just said, this little Aussie beach girl inside of me <laughs> needs to get back to the ocean. What is our exit strategy? And, and we spent a few months over the summer just going back and forward. And we even went so far as to taking a recon trip out to Victoria on Vancouver Island thinking... We love it here. It's more affordable. It's on the coast. You know, it's on the Pacific Ocean, which is what I love. And we made a plan. Two years from now, my husband would retire and we would uh, we'd move there. And then like a month later, before Uranus had left Taurus the first time, mm -hmm. my husband comes to me and says, there's this job in Europe that I think I'm going to apply for. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, the Jupiter in me is like, give it a shot and we'll worry about it, you know. Like, you're going to have to have 600 interviews for this job. Just put your hat in the ring and see what happens. And, of course, he did get the job. And so this March, just after Uranus went in to Taurus again, we went on what's called a house hunting trip as a recon part of finding a place to live connected to this job that he's starting in Belgium in August. And so that sense of being stirred last year, and thinking you have a plan, like it's like the beta version, mm -hmm. and then Uranus has come back, and we've got no. This is the actual version of what's going to happen. So, yeah, yeah. so that, that works not just like Uranus transits, but other outer planet transits like Saturn, Jupiter, when they're going back and forth, especially across sign boundaries, but also sometimes just in terms of the degrees that they hit. Like if you get the first transit of an outer planet, but then it goes retrograde and comes back and hits it two more times. Sometimes you'll see a similar thing where there's like a sequence of events that plays out over an extended period of time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it is interesting because it's not fourth house for all three of us. It's Uranus and Taurus's third house for me. Austin, I think it's 11th house yeah, it, for it's, you. It's uh, aspecting the ruler of my fourth precisely though. Okay. Okay. Yeah, for me, it's aspecting the ruler of my first and 10th, not the ruler of my fourth, but... Uh, you know, it's still still happening regardless. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so yours is interesting. I mean, that brings up like one of the episodes I did this month where I didn't do horoscopes this month, and my apologies to everybody who was emailing me all month asking about the horoscopes. Um, but we did in episode 197 did a talk on Uranus transits through each of the 12 houses where we recorded a local meeting of the Denver Astrology Group, which by the way, if anybody lives in Denver and you haven't attended yet, you should totally join us for one of the meetings. Just do a search for Denver Astrology Group and you'll find our page on Meetup. But we did a panel and we talked about 
what Uranus transits are like through each of the houses, and we also shared some stories and took some stories from the audience about how those transits have worked out for different people in the past and heard a lot of really interesting stuff. And that's actually sort of was meant to in some ways be the placeholder for doing horoscopes this month because it applies to each of the 12 rising signs so people can understand what that Uranus transit's supposed to be about for them. Um, but you guys are coming off of you know certain Uranus transits. Um, I guess Kelly, it's coming out of your what your tenth not tenth whole sign house second second whole sign house and moving into your third and Austin, it's coming out of your tenth and moving into your eleventh. Yeah, correct. Yeah, so I mean, have we talked about this in the past? Is this redundant? I mean, did you guys see major changes in those Kelly in your second house or Austin in your tenth over the course of the past decade? Yeah, we we have talked about it, and um, you know, for for me, it was actually surprisingly steady in terms of growth. Um, you know, I, I'm certainly made a lot of progress professionally since 2012 um, or 2011, and um, oh, right, yours was like shedding your pin name. Basically, it was not long after you had done that. I realize you started that process maybe a little before, but certainly. Coming into your own in terms of your reputation has been interesting for me witnessing that with you over the past decade. Yeah, that was yeah that was the very beginning. I think I did that two months after the the sort of toe dip ingress in 2010. I believe I did that in September of 2010, um, right before I went out to the esoteric book conference that year. Um, but yeah, it was you know it was actually maybe, I, I think that there. Uh, I think there are certain houses that Uranus's potency is much safer in than others. You know, mm. in the tenth, you can you know you can break ground. You know, you can um, you can do a lot of the you know the dramatic breakthrough stuff that Uranus is uh, reputed to do um, pretty relatively safely. You know, I don't love Uranus in the sixth house for people, for example. Um, you know, uh, th there are areas that y you don't really want quick movement, but then there are other areas where that kind of movement's, you know, just fine. I like Uranus in the ninth a lot too. I see a lot of people have really um, huge upgrades to the way they think about reality, think about and approach reality during Uranus transit through the ninth. But, you know, there, and there are other places that aren't necessarily hostile, but it's not that useful. Like Uranus in the third is, you know, it's disrupting your schedule. Um, which doesn't have uh, to be. That's the definition of my life right yeah, now. Austin. Right, yeah, that's Kelly's. You know, and it, that's not like uh, that's not nightmarish, but it's not. No, it, it just you know certain planets significations fit more easily in certain houses than others. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and I want to ask you about yours, Kelly. But really quickly, I wanted to ask you guys. Uh, one commenter on YouTube was a little bit annoyed because by the time we got to the very end of it, we got to the twelfth house. Just like when you start from Aries yeah. and like go all the way through to Pisces, and then you're exhausted. By the time you get to Pisces, we were running out of time, and we sort of also the twelfth is hard to talk about sometimes because there can be some challenging stuff there. So you can be sometimes a little more tight-lipped about talking about that because you don't want to make like a bunch of negative statements, but. Have you guys had any observations about Uranus transits through the twelfth house and some different ways that that sometimes manifests for people? It's a tough question. Well, yeah, right? it's. Uh, oh yeah, you're pulling your ephemeris to see because you would have yeah. had that at yeah. one point. Totally, all of Uranus in Aquarius, so I'm just like tuning into when that was for me. So Uranus was in Aquarius, I guess. Uh, 
Where's my other red book? I need the other one. Um, late 90s. So I actually, so when Uranus was in Aquarius, that was 12th house for me. I started to study astrology formally. Um, I need to just check. I've got books everywhere. Um, <laughs> do you have like three ephemerises within reaching distance? I do actually. <laughs> okay. No, that's good. That's impressive. I have my impressive. old and new version of this and then I have this one. Because um, sometimes you just need to reference this shit. Right. Um, okay. So Uranus. Okay. Right. So this was, um, so just 200 thoughts in my mind. Uranus in the 12th for me was working through a lot of baggage from my past. Um, mm. Basically, Uranus moved into my 12th when I was about 17 or 18 years old and was there until my early 20s. Now, it was just stuff from my family and my upbringing that I had to process because I always think of the 12th house as a bit like your personal Pandora's box where you have stuff that's kind of tucked in there that you might have forgotten about and Uranus comes on and starts stirring everything up. I remember having periods of sleeplessness in that time and I remember doing a lot of really intense journal writing because I had to, you know, it was, it was Uranus in an air sign so there was part, that's part of it but I just had to get some of the stuff inside me out. But I also did start studying astrology and I also took my remedial massage therapy training. I also started running my first little astrology group in my own home because it was sort of that quiet, safe 12th house sanctuary, but still doing, you know, Uranus type stuff, if you like. So there there can be some productive elements to it, but it's definitely, it has a quality of disturbing the psyche or disturbing the mind. Now, for me, that helped me push back on the pressure I had at that point in my life to go into a more conventional career, which I tried for a couple of years. But by the time Uranus was out of my 12th house and into my first, I was like, no, no, we're going to give this astrology massage therapy gig a shot and we'll come back to corporate if we need to in the future. So it was processing a lot of that stuff for me um, and then some of the symbolism that I would tie in there. Uh, But I don't know. I mean, how would you phrase it, Austin? Oh, um, the first thing I was going to say was therapy. You know, it's, yeah. uh, like you said, it stirs up all that 12th house stuff. And the best thing to do is actually cooperate with that. You know, I would say yeah. if Uranus is um, moving into your 12th house or has just moved into your 12th house, start a dream journal. One of my, one of, uh, this is something I've, I've said a million times, but it's true. Um, one of my favorite things that anybody said about Uranus was something Rick Levine told me one time. He said, Uranus makes it impossible to repress anything in yeah, that area. Yeah, you can't. Can't keep a lid on it. And so the 12th house is where things go to be repressed. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, you know, you get in a, you get eruptions of that kind of, of whatever that material is. And so, you know, um, it's best if you, you have something to catch that in and then to refine it, you know, and then to, to begin the alchemy because the raw material will emerge of its own accord. Yeah. I like the keyword you used, Kelly, of dealing with the past or letting go of the past. Yeah, it was really critical. And, and when I track back now, you know, when I think about what Uranus in Pisces, which was first house for me, that was this sort of explosive, exciting outcoming of me working as an astrologer. I got my, I think I've written about this on my blog, where when Uranus hit the degree of my ascendant, I magically, coincidentally, out of the blue, ended up with a very large um, annual astrology horoscope writing contract that, uh, you know, I've been doing for many years ever since. But it was, 
I don't think I could have been in a position to benefit from what Uranus in the first was really trying to bring forward had I not dealt with the baggage and, you know, just all the stuff that happened in my childhood that was weird and painful that had, you know, you don't have the resources as a teenager or as a young child to deal with that stuff. So you tuck it in the 12th. And, you know, regardless of of how old you are when Uranus goes through your 12th, it's only going to happen once in your lifetime. If you live to be an average 84-year-old person, we all get seven to eight years of Uranus in the 12th. And that's your opportunity to clear a lot of that emotional baggage or psychic clutter. And you want to do it because you want to be ready for Uranus in the first house. That That's so exciting that it's worth whatever you have to kind of sift through with Uranus in the 12th. Definitely. Yeah. And so that idea that can be sometimes about like sudden endings, but endings sometimes as being necessary in preparation for a new beginning starting with the first house. Absolutely. Yeah. And a few comments, you know, in the chat box here, similar people, like you guys saying, doing therapy and somebody else really got into their astrology at that point. Um, and there may be other things going on too, but it's interesting, those little pieces. Yeah. I was, I've been reminded about how much you guys made this point already that it's about Uranus transits are often about like liberation and seeking freedom. But then sometimes there is a question, and I'm already observing this in like different people's lives in watching that shift in Uranus and one person I know where it's going to their fourth house. And sometimes like this sudden urge to like make major radical changes, but then sometimes questions about whether they're going to ultimately end up being constructive changes or like not constructive changes. And if um, just that question sometimes where it, there's a little bit of walking into the unknown, but a desire or a feeling like you like are being pushed to do something um, and you can't necessarily, or it might be hard to to hold that back even if you wanted to. Yeah, it definitely yeah. lights that Promethean fire, right? That there's a desire to, I don't know, um, steal fire from heaven to yeah. reject the existing order of things. It's very, you know, it's very Prometheus. It's also very um, uh, a Miltonian Satan. You know, I'd ra- rather rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. Um, you know, there's the like, anything but this is a very common yeah. Uranian sentiment. And, you know, that's uh, whether that's fortuitous or not, <laughs> you know, it's not fortuitous or not. Like, that's just that's the directionality of it. And you have to assess, you know, whether it's a good or good idea or not based on whatever instruments you have. When I think of Uranus, I always think of the uh, the fool card in the tarot, um, you know, which mm. is usually, you know, it's a figure who's kind of all packed up and on the road and they're about to fall off a cliff. You know, and they're about to fall. It's you know the the fool is the the archetypal protagonist in that they don't know the story that's about to start. You know, they don't know the story that they're about to fall into. I tend to advise people when they're having you know big Uranus transits um, to just take an experimental um, frame of mind on um, because you don't know. Like you know, find out. Do you know? Try that. See what happens. Like. I think that the um, the one frame of mind that people come into with Uranus transits that's actually the u- least useful is wanting to know everything ahead of time. Right. Um, <laughs> it's like the least useful strategy for life. Basically. How to expect the unexpected. Right. Well, it, yeah, and, and that that's of course um, on an emotional level. That's how we 
react to a significant uncertainty is we want to mm-hmm. double down on the known. Um, but you know, Uranus is the mad scientist and doing experimentation and then finding out, you know, finding out what happens and being, you know, get, how should we say, a sort of obtaining some of that scientific bravery with your life where you're willing to experiment without pretending that you know exactly what's going to happen. Regardless of what happens, you will have data. And although, you know, we get scared when we make any change that is significant, um, there are not there, you know, uh, people people's fear about making change and fear that they'll make a permanent mistake is often much greater than the actual consequences of whatever the whatever the choice is. You know, be brave. Don't pretend you know everything. Find out what happens. You know, like we were saying with the um, with the way that Uranus is steady. Um, direct motion and then retrogradation goes. A lot of times you're going to get, you know, if it's a planet that's being aspected, you'll get three hits. And so, you know, maybe you go for it on the first one and then you reevaluate on the second or the third or whatever. Anyway, that's yeah. a little bit of how I deal with Uranus. The phrase that comes to mind is it's like the throw caution to the wind transit. Like that's the best phrase or like idiom I can think of that sort of encapsulate what you're talking about. Yeah, I use a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, to often describe Uranus signatures. It may be, you know, someone who has a really strong Uranus placement in their natal chart or somebody who's going through, you know, a big Uranus transit. And what the, the quote is, do not go where the path may lead, go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. And mm. the idea there is that there is that experimentation, data gathering, as you're saying, Austin. Um, it's almost like you've got to get curious about what things might be like and give it a shot mm-hmm. and see what happens, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that we're already seeing this. Like, this is what's so exciting to me about major planetary shifts, especially outer planet shifts, is when you already were into it already. We're like now a few weeks into it because we've been anticipating for a while what it was going to be like and what stuff we were going to start seeing. And now I'm starting to see it happen. And it's so much fun to start seeing that stuff happening in people's lives around you and starting to see the shift in those energies or however you want to describe it um because it's so like informative and educational but visceral in like actually experiencing it sometime in your own sometimes in your own life and seeing it happening in other people's lives in terms of that real like empirical tangible understanding of of learning astrology mhm like Uranus hasn't gone into Taurus before in my lifetime. This is the first time I'm experiencing this. And so yeah. it's interesting seeing that and what that's like, you know, a transit that maybe I noticed coming up at the ephemeris someday 20 years ago when I first started learning astrology in the early 2000s and it's now happening and you're starting to see those changes in different ways in people's lives around you. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's super I, I'm always entertained by the um oh, the shift from Theorizing and speculating as to what a particular planetary position might do into getting to watch the show. Right. Or like this month doing that with like the Mercury uh, retrograde conjunct Neptune in Pisces. Was that about, was that everything? That was was everything it was cracked up to be for me. I mean, there were some curveballs, but they were funny, like really like on character curveballs. So that I was just like, yeah, of course that's happening because. Of this, because Mercury's retrograde in Pisces and it's conjoining Neptune now. Yeah, that one was um, as labeled. <laughs> I love it. 
Um, I mean, I'm thinking on the Uranus track, one thing astrologically that's happening in April is we will have the sun conjunct Uranus, which I think is the first time the sun is conjunct Uranus in Taurus because last year, I don't think they were at the same degree. They might've been in Taurus at the same time, but we didn't get a conjunction. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. Austin. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're correct. Uranus followed the sun into Taurus. That's what I thought. Yeah. Actually, so that's, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. Go ahead. L- later in the month, but I, I think that I'm really interested to watch and see what sort of amplification or spotlight or activation comes through around that time for this longer Uranus in Taurus trend. Looks like April 22nd, around two and a half degrees of Taurus. So that's more or less right around where it stationed retrograde at two degrees of Taurus last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so that's, that's just just a little thing in April. Right. You've got something hitting that, right, Austin, at two fixed signs? Yeah, I have my oh, Venus yes, at, yes, you at do. two of Aquarius. So we should have an offer in on a house by then if, if things go as I suspect they will. And that's the rule will. of your fourth. Yeah. Beautiful. That's exciting. Yeah. I'm, you know, fingers crossed. I don't want to, I don't want to jinx it. Don't want to jinx anything. Yeah. It's early days. These, this is a, it, buying a house is such a big process that, uh, I always feel like it's a bit magical when it comes together because there's so many steps and stages along the way, the financing, the banking, the approval, the agreeing with the seller. You know, there's there's a number of steps that things can fall down and they do sometimes. And, you know, the one time, of course, where it all comes together, it, it is that sense of like meant to be. Yeah. So let's, um, let's start hitting the rest of the forecast uh, a little bit more sort of in order from the top of the month and like moving through. Uh, one of the first things I, that happens, I think we should touch on, is there's a lunation really early in the month in the first week, right? Yeah, the fifth, Friday the fifth. Okay, so new moon uh, on Friday the fifth in Aries. So there's a new moon in Aries. Yes. All right. So, what do you guys think the- about that? Um, it's a new moon. It's at 15 degrees of Aries. Uh, Mercury is. Is direct now, but it's still conjunct Neptune. So we're still like trying to drag ourselves out of that Mercury retrograde conjunct Neptune, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, it looks like the lunation at 15 Aries is squaring Saturn a little bit, about five degrees yeah. away at 20 degrees of Capricorn. It's a little heavy. Um, although by this time, of course, Mars has changed signs and moved into Gemini and finally gotten out of Taurus. Uh, yeah, so I mean, we've got an interesting and mixed bag here, right? Because we have we have Venus in a beautiful position uh, at eleven pi or eleven-ish Pisces there, um, and the you know the sun is exalted in Aries. It's you know there's a a blooming of light there. Um, you know it's it's you know it's the best dignity that the sun has had in months and months and months. And we also have the sun's ruler in this case, uh, Mars, Mars having just entered Gemini the week before, you know, fast, 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 let's do things. But Mercury is, you know, still deep within the shadow of the previous retrograde, still fallen mm. um, in murky Pisces. And, you know, the sun is striding toward a square with an, you know, an intimidating Saturn. You know, it's not just Saturn in the superior position uh, to the sun. It's Saturn in Capricorn. It's Saturn conjunct the South Node. It's Saturn conjunct Pluto. 
Um, and that's, you know, it's that trio, that Saturn, Pluto, South node, um, is, you know, hands down the most difficult and the most consistently difficult, um, uh, stuff in the sky in 2019. And so, you know, it's interesting. We have almost, uh, you know, there's, uh, something almost a little bit her potentially heroic about the, the sun and Aries confronting the, um, Saturn, South node, Pluto, in Capricorn, um, you know, and, and in the days following the new moon, the sun will be moving closer and closer into that square. Um, and there's there's more to that story. But, um, you know, if we're talking about, you know, doing new things and, you know, trying to get everything together, um, the the emphasis, the weight of the past is very much symbolized by that Saturn Pluto south node. And so this is, um, you know, this is heroic uh, Marie Kondoing. You know, this is Marie Kondoing with a flamethrower. Right. Well, uh, yeah. And sorry, Chris. No, go ahead. I was going to say it, it is heroic Marie Kondoing, but I think it's also some kind of weird invitation slash demand that the Marie Kondoing process is now applied to more substantial internal things rather than just our wardrobes or our stuff in terms of the blossoming that the sun in Aries is striving towards versus this, if you like, baggage or old patterns or habits that might be described by the Saturn South Node Pluto combination whether that's just a bad habit that you've fallen into that you need to figure out a way to try and get out of the grips of, whether there is some stuff in your your family history. I know, you know, the idea of the ancestral lineage, we've talked about a little bit before with the South Node here. You know, it's almost looking at what is impairing that sun in Aries path forward, which is probably going to have something to do with the past, something old, something entrenched. And how can there be some sort of negotiation between those two? Yeah, right. absolutely. And it's it's significant to know that if we're using the uh, the mean uh, the mean node calculation, right before that we have the south node or Ketu's uh, conjunction with Pluto, and yeah. uh, later in the month we get the south node's conjunction with Saturn. And so we've had that. Um, what's What's the what's the what's the three form of pairing that trining that tri triumvirating trio? that Tri trioing um, of Saturn Pluto South Node for I don't know four or five months now, but this is the uh, this is the South Node hitting both of the both Saturn and Pluto exactly while they're closer than they have been you know than they ever have been before. Right, and which is really weird, of course, because later this month we're going to get an intensification of Saturn and Pluto when they both station retrograde. Yeah, on the South Node. <laughs> so, yeah, that wow. like that's like you know this this month is really interesting to me from the point of view of we have that like that 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 uh, obstruction difficulty blockage weight uh, signature is super emphasized. But for a lot of the month, we also have, you know, a pretty glorious set of configurations, right? We have Venus exalted. We've got the sun exalted. We've got Jupiter in Sag. Um, and then, you know, you put the moon in the right place and you've just got beautiful charts at several points this month. Um, and so, you know, in many ways, we, we have a better set of configurations during the first three weeks of April than we're going to have for quite some time. 
you know, it doesn't get better in May. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's what Lisa and I found. We just recorded and released it, released the uh, Auspicious Elections podcast for April, where we went through, and Lisa actually found a bunch of great electional charts for the first half of April, but then it started getting a lot more difficult later in April to find really clean charts. Yeah, well, there's a significant shift um, uh, right around the sun's ingress into Taurus. Um, yeah, Venus goes into Aries about the same. Yeah, day. exactly. And so we have the yeah we have the the Sun moving out of exaltation and Venus moving out of exaltation uh, on the twentieth. Um, and you know it's not that the it starts raining poop. It's just not like you know it's <laughs> it's not raining rainbows. Yeah, it, there's no like gold pellets coming down anymore. Yeah, it, the, 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 those choice bits just aren't available anymore. Well, and look at the contrast. Like, look at here on April twenty third, the sun conjoins um, Uranus for the first time. That transit you guys were talking about, and that's the same day virtually that the moon conjoins Jupiter and Sagittarius. But then it's like immediately after that, the moon goes into Capricorn and catches up with Saturn and the South Node in Pluto, and that's when the first of those series of stations happen because Pluto stations retrograde at twenty three Capricorn immediately after that, around the twenty fourth or twenty fifth. Then the moon hits those planets, and then not too long after that, by the 29th and 30th, Saturn stations retrograde. Yeah, exactly. So that's like a weird pileup at the end of the month. Yeah, that you know, as far as getting while well, the getting's good, up until the 20th, right? You know, and so you know, part of that, the the, I don't know, part of the the imperative here is to you know, catch up on stuff, you know, catch up on stuff while the skies are supportive to, um, you know, to start the new things that you've been meaning to while their skies are supportive. We have a really nice window here. Like, I don't think that there are better electional charts for another five months. Um, there's some good ones, things, there's some nice, there's some nice bits in August. And, um, mm -hmm. I like the end of the second half of September a lot. Um, and it's not that it's all horror between now and then. It's just that there are some unusually good things um, that are present during the first couple of weeks of April. And so, you know, you can just kind of kick back and enjoy it or even better, you know, make use of it. Um, despite the fact that, yes, yeah, that Saturn Pluto South Node thing is there, um, you know, the resistance is there. It's not that this is. Um, it's not that there, you know, that there's no resistance and that it's a slip and slide to utopia. <laughs> um, there is resistance, <laughs> but there's still a lot here. Um, there's a lot worth putting. There's a lot that makes it worth putting in the effort to get things started, to get caught up during this first three weeks. Absolutely. I, I nerded out a little bit on the Saturn South Node, Pluto South Node. I just did a little bit of data collection just to see, you know, how often are these things happening? Have we had an instance relatively recently where Saturn and Pluto have been with the South Node so closely? And that actually hasn't happened. I only looked back to sort of 1900s and Pluto and the South Node are together about every 17 years, give or take. Saturn and the South Node are together about every 11 years. There's been two instances in the 20th century where they were close, you know, once within sort of a six-month time frame and once within about a 12-month time frame. But this is the only instance where we get that conjunction happening in the same, you know, Saturn, South Node, Pluto, South Node in the same four-week period. 
So that idea of there is some amazingly good stuff. It's like the first two to three weeks of April are these sort of extremes, if you like, where there's some really good stuff that's worth activating, as you said, Austin. But I do think we have to be really present to the idea of what do we have to demolish or pull apart or step away from or end so that we can, you know, maybe have space or energy or resources to go for the good stuff, to go for the gold. And that just reminded me, you saying that, Kelly, reminded me that this is um, the lunations this month then must be the the halfway point or the midpoint between the eclipses this year in like Capricorn and Cancer, the Capricorn Cancer axis, because that means these two eclipses or, or sets of lunations in Aries and Libra are like the, the middle cardinal signs in between that. So it's like the, the halfway point. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So turning point with respect to whatever the series of events is between that were probably opened up with some of those eclipses earlier this year in Capricorn and Cancer, and then whatever the continuation of that series of events is uh, this summer when we get the next set of eclipses six months later. But here we have the the sort of crucial turning point in between the, that series of events uh, when we get our two lunations this month, first in Aries and then in Libra. Um, so while we're speaking about that and speaking about the first part of the month being way better, this might be a good opportunity to mention the electional chart for this month before I forget to do it like I did last month. Uh, so we actually found a ton of charts. We had more charts and more alternative rising signs that we threw in this month than I think any other month we've done on the Auspicious Elections podcast so far. Uh, we had two potential ones that we could feature, but we decided to just feature this one. So this is the chart. It's set for uh, April tw- April fourteenth, two thousand nineteen, starting at around seven fifteen uh, in the morning, give or take, not too long after sunrise, with around let's say twelve degrees of Taurus rising, or just Taurus rising in general. So this is a eleventh um, house focused electional chart. It has Taurus rising, and the ruler of the ascendant is Venus, which is exalted in Pisces in the 11th whole sign house, and it's applying to a square with Jupiter, which is over in Sagittarius in the 8th whole sign house uh, in a day chart. So this is a situation where the ruler of the ascendant is well-situated zodiacally, uh, being in the sign of its exaltation. It's also in a good house, the 11th house, uh, and it's got an applying close degree-based aspect with a benefic, which is Jupiter, that it's applying to by square with reception. So this would be a great 11th house chart for 11th house activities related to friends, groups, alliances, and things of that nature. Uh, We definitely recommend it for that. Um, It's not a great chart for financial matters because it has Mars in the second house in a day chart. So if financial matters are really crucial to your election, then you might not want to use this chart. You might want to use one of the other electional charts that we found this month in that podcast. Uh, The moon in the chart is in the fourth house at 17-ish degrees of Leo. And it's applying to a trine with Jupiter. Um, and this chart also, depending on your time zone, has the Sun at 24 degrees of Aries applying to a trine with Jupiter at 24 degrees of Sagittarius. So you can put any degree of Taurus rising. You probably don't want to put Uranus right on the ascendant unless you're doing something particularly Uranian. Uh, we have it set here so that the midheaven in Denver is at 24 degrees of Capricorn because we wanted to mitigate the sun being in the 12th mm. house. And that's the way to do it is by making the sun configured uh, by a close degree-based aspect within three degrees to the degree of the sun. And if you do that, you will get more of a constructive or positive manifestation of the sun in the 12th rather than the more challenging one that, that people might want to avoid. 
So that is the electional chart for this month. Uh, you guys have any 11th house things you need to do this month? Um, I mean, this this chart this has totally got nothing to do specifically with this election. Just the Taurus rising Venus in Pisces reminds me of a conversation that happened on Twitter with Austin um, about, maybe it wasn't a conversation, you might have tweeted something around the exaltation degree of Venus being a better day for Valentine's Day when the sun goes near there each oh, month. Oh, I was, well, what um, I was saying was, is what's interesting is, each year is I should St. Patrick's Day that's is what actually yes. when the sun overlaps with Venus's degree of exaltation every year. And it's interesting mm -hmm. because it's a it's a holiday that's already super Venusian, uh, even though it's supposedly about celebrating snakes going away or something. But really, it's about wearing green, which is a traditionally Venusian color, color, and hanging out and drinking a lot and having a great time, um, which is like, yeah. of course, that's the Venus in Pisces day. Um, and I was, you know, like if you look at the election for Valentine's Day, or if you look at Valentine's Day from an, an electional standpoint, it doesn't work very well. Um, yeah, the, and the sun's in kind of craziness. Yeah, well, it's just like yeah, it's in the last decade of Aquarius. Okay, um, but you know what's fun about the the day uh, the day of this electional chart is this is the final seasons of final season of Game of Thrones day. This is premiere mm -hmm. day. That's and hilarious. it's premiering on the 14th. Yeah. And so that's so funny. So we picked out our, our most featured electional chart for the month is the day that, that the final season of Game of Thrones premieres. And if you look at, you know, when it's going to like, if you look at like six o'clock uh, Pacific, right, um, then you have the moon basically at 24 in a perfect grand fire trine with Jupiter and uh... the sun. It's like, well, of course, like that's everybody's going to watch that. You know, of course, that has, you know, that that has a, <laughs> um, you know, a pretty epic configuration. That's hilarious. You're right. That grand fire trine does complete later that evening, like right around the time it'll be airing. Well, yeah, that sun Jupiter trine is, you know, it's a really yummy aspect that we have coming through this April with the sun exalted Jupiter in rulership. And then to get the the moon application, yeah, and that's also the sun's reward for getting through the square to Saturn yes. South Node and Pluto, because our you know mm. the sequence which I, I I spoke of the first part of uh, when we we're talking about the new moon at fifteen, right? The sun you know then has to do the square with Saturn South Node Pluto, but as soon as the sun gets done with that, it gets a nice trine with Jupiter, and so there's you know yeah. there's a there's a reward on the other, uh, waiting immediately on the other side of that particular ordeal. Right. Look at that. A, a golden reward. Yeah. A nice. That's beautiful. 24 degrees of the fire signs, an exact fire grand trine. Yeah. Definitely take yeah. advantage. That's like the opposite of your podcast, Kelly. Some other fire sign people are going to have to start a podcast that day called the fire sign Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And it'll be very different. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so oh, yeah, that's different. the electional chart for this month. So we found like five or six other electional charts, which you can get access to if you become a patron on the five or ten dollar tiers uh, on our page on Patreon at theastrologypodcast.com/slash/subscribe. Then you just go to the Patreon page, sign up, and then you'll get immediate access to that. I think it's like a thirty or forty minute discussion where Lisa and I go through all of the electional charts each month and talk about what they they can be used for and what they're good for or not good for or what have you. Nice. Fantastic. Speaking of um, fire signs and sort of back to uh, astrology's 
uh, infiltration, increasing intersection with pop culture. Do either of y'all watch Drag Race? Austin, uh, no. is that a serious question for me? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's serious I because don't. the answer is yes. No, the answer is like, I, I, I'm not even sure what the show is about. Oh, is you're it missing out. It's drag literally, no, it's the apotheosis queens? of I'm, reality television. I'm not sure. Um, anyway, uh, it's it's RuPaul's Drag Race. It's. Um, I was like, is this the RuPaul show that I'm randomly hearing about? Yes. Okay. Anyway, a couple, a couple, I can't believe you don't watch Drag Race. Um, Anyway, the uh, um, the runway theme a couple weeks ago was dress was was um, was your zodiac sign. What's your sign? And so all of the uh. contestants did like a full runway look that was their zodiac sign. And it was um, not only was it you know just fun, but it was also fun because you got to see everybody's sign. And uh, they were oh, not cool. evenly distributed. The Le- it was it was sort of Leo, Aries, and Pisces. There were multiple, 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 and I think there were maybe two caps, and that was about it. Um, but I was like, that makes sense. Um, and you get and it was I don't know it was a lot of fun. I, okay, so neither of you guys watched. I love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I, mean, I, I think this I is mean, great. If you're endorsing it, if this is given like the Austin Hoppick seal of approval. Oh yeah, we'll have to check I, it out. Kate and I have seen every episode of every season. We're waiting with I mean, bated breath. Um, I mean, that's just like one of another of a hundred different things I've been meaning to write down of just astrology weirdly coming out into the mainstream or into mainstream media in different ways. Like the New York Times ran an article against like Mercury retrograde or complaining about it this past month yeah. and trying to dissuade people. I mean, they're still saying Mercury is in retrograde, but at least it was in the New York Times, I guess. Yeah, and there was a funny little exchange with like on Twitter where Cosmo Cosmopolitan like sort of made fun of them, and they were like, "That's such a Capricorn thing to say," or something like that <laughs> in the in, in the like Twitter exchanges because you know Cosmo actually just launched a new and expanded like astrology section in their magazine, which is interesting and another manifestation of that. I feel like there was like a few other little things like that that happened in the past month, and I can't remember them all. I've been meaning to do. A podcast episode, so I might ask people to send me in things that you've seen over the past year where astrology is suddenly showing up in different weird ways in mainstream media and seems to be going more mainstream. And maybe I'll do some sort of like roundup of that in an episode of the podcast at some point here in the not too distant future. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Um, Okay, back to the forecast. We got through the first lunation. Um, where are we at once we get to the second week of the month? I think there's a, an important thing that happens, which is Jupiter, who's been cruising along in Sagittarius, doing pretty well, uh, suddenly slows down and stations retrograde by about April 9th, April 10th, right? Yeah. I mean, Jupiter's yes. been slowing down for like a month. So it's, <laughs> it's, only, right. uh, it's, only, it's, only, it's only a surprise uh, if you hadn't noticed that. But yeah, we we get Jupiter's retrograde station on the tenth, is it? Yeah, yeah, on the tenth, yes, tenth Eastern, eleventh in Australia. So that begins Jupiter's third of the year retrograde, which it does each and every year. Um, I feel like we need to do a little bit of a PSA moment here. You know, the retrogrades of Jupiter, Saturn, Pluto, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they're not like Mercury or Venus retrogrades. Um, you okay. know, the, the, it, the, like, whereas Venus, for example, will almost flip significations and go from being a creator of harmony to a creator of strife, 
um, when it goes retrograde. Jupiter doesn't become this big, bad, awful when it goes retrograde. It calls for right. a little bit more. It calls for a little bit more. How should we say? Uh, 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 thoughtfulness about uh, surging forward. I, I I tend to describe it in terms of consolidating the gains that you've made or digesting what you've learned. You know, it, it's not it's not quite as extroverted or as risk takey. Um, but it's not malefic, and it doesn't become malefic in. Uh, in elections or or in natal charts, it's not in terms of just like in terms of grading Jupiter's phases in terms of pure benefic potency. It is not as potent as the direct phases, um, but it doesn't. It, you know, it's still worth putting in your electional charts. It's still Jupiter, and in this case, it's still Jupiter in Sagittarius. Yeah, it's like a slight, yeah. you know, impediment or or. Um... What is it like a minor imperfection on Jupiter? But sometimes, like I, I don't know. Sometimes when I put an election out where it's like Jupiter, I know somebody will somebody's inevitably going to criticize it and say, "Well, you made the ruler of the ascendant retrograde" or something like that. But mm. if we're talking about Jupiter in its own sign in a day chart in a good house, if it's also retrograde, that may cause some delays or some like do overs or like minor imperfections or impediments like that. But that's not a huge deal breaker and. Sometimes I feel like people struggle with that with electional astrology of not knowing how to correctly prioritize and realizing that a lot of the art of electional astrology is trying to avoid the things that are like the worst case scenario and working with the things that are acceptable shortcomings, let's say. Yeah, I find with Jupiter, um, uh, with Jupiter's retrograde, it does take a little bit longer to get to the, you know, the, uh, uh, the, positive outcome but it gets mm -hmm. to the positive outcome it's just right. the mm -hmm. the path is a little windier but it's still it's a difference between a straight versus a windy path to get to something good and both of them lead there um and so yes prefer the you know the direct over the um uh over the circumambulatory but still yeah, you'd take a a surreptitious Jupiter versus a much more difficultly placed Saturn or Mars that might be direct but could still be more problematic. Um, I think that was a good PSA, Austin, because I do find that people struggle to understand that you know a retrograde can affect a planet differently depending on the nature, size, and scope of a planet. And for some planets, a retrograde is a massively inhibiting sort of changing influence. And for other planets, as we've just described here, it's a blip, but you're still looking at a golden thing. Um, yeah. So it's not as much of a deal breaker, I guess, for the slower moving planets as it is for the quick ones. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, we'll be dealing with that for the next several months. It's not till later this year at some point uh, that Jupiter will stay. July. Is it August. already by July? Or, or is it mid-August? Okay. On the... 2019 planetary alignments calendar, which I have on my wall. Oh, I beg your pardon. Yes. Conveniently, yes. I just sent a bunch, um, 150 of them to Amazon and is back on Amazon after being gone for a few weeks. And I've dropped the price to $15. So you can find that uh, at, I guess you on Amazon, you search for 2019 astrology calendar package or something like that, and you'll find it. Uh, it says that Jupiter stations direct August 11th. 
Yeah, yes. it, it's almost. Here's e- me wishing it goes direct in July. <laughs> it, it's it's almost <laughs> Sorry, exactly Austin. on the trines that Jupiter, mm. the trines to the sun that Jupiter stations. So you'll get like, you basically have four months of morning rising, four months of retrograde, four months of evening rising with Jupiter. You know, it's, it's, it's a benefic. And so it, it's, it likes clean math. You know, it's not, uh, it's yeah. not, it's not complicated. It's just basically a third for each cycle with the uh, little bit of invisibility um, at the end. Love it. So yeah, Jupiter will spend basically the whole month, I think, at 23, 24 degrees of Sag. Okay. Because of the um, station. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, for some people will be good. If that's like hitting a personal planet for you, it may be the intensification of a positive transit. Um, it's certainly something that's going to come back to that point. So it may initiate or begin a series of events that may not fully come to completion until later this year. When Jupiter returns back to that degree, back to like 24 degrees and, and completes its final pass, but at least it could be like the initiation or the opening of a certain window that could have some positive like growth and stabilization type themes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's happening around the 10th. Then we get into uh, the next week of April, and that's probably where a lot of the action starts happening, right? Right. Well, we have that. We have the big old grand trine on the 14th, which is Sunday. Um, right. And then shortly thereafter, we have a, a planet changing sign. We have Mercury moving into Aries. Mm. So this is Mercury finally being done with Pisces, you know, right. after more than two solid months. And so that's that's a good thing, I think. In, yeah. In, when did that start? Like how far? Because that's it doesn't it's not until it leaves pretty much because it's stationed retrograde at 29. So that's basically when it leaves its shadow as well. Was it February so 8th, yes. I want to say? No, February 9th. 10th. 10th. Oh, big pardon. 9th. No, Fe- 18th, yeah. February 18th. Listen to us with Mercury and Pisces. All right, so February, yeah. Uh, what? Mer- oh my Mer- God, Mercury- wrong year. Oh my God, that's 2018. <laughs> Mer- Mercury uh, entered uh, Pisces on Pisces February 10th. on the 11th. Yeah, there, there it is. So now I'm sharing. I thought oh I was my sharing. God, it. I forgot that I wasn't. It's so like here... two months that Mercury's been in Pisces. Okay, so that was the beginning of that transit for a lot of people. Was February 10th. It went into Pisces, and has been going through everyone's whole sign house that's represented by Pisces. So at the very least, activating the topics associated with that house. Um, it went into its shadow. What at 16 degrees of Pisces. So that was around February 19th. Then it's stationed retrograde at 29 Pisces around March 5th, March 6th. Uh, went direct eventually recently this week as we're recording this around March 29th. And then finally moves direct and passes its shadow April 16th and moves into Aries around the same time frame around April 17th. So yeah, that's the end of a very long Mercury transit for a lot of people. <sighs> it is. And so not only is that, you know, Mercury in swift, bright, sharp areas, um, that also puts Mercury into a mutual reception with Mars, right? Mercury is in Mars ruled areas, Mars is in Mercury ruled Gemini. And so, you know, we're kind of doubling down on that, you know, on that quick, multiple, fast, sharp, bright quality. I like that. That is very nice. How do you feel about mutual receptions? That's actually the talk that I'm preparing for 
Norwak is reception as a mitigating factor in natal astrology. And I sort of recognize different types of mutual reception, um, but they all seem to, especially in natal astrology, I always see that as like a really big mitigating factor. And that's one of the things I'm interested and excited to sort of share with people because it's surprising. It's one of the nice like traditional concepts that I learned in terms of traditional mitigating factors that really seems to make a difference when you're looking at natal charts and whether somebody has like a challenging aspect that's like really tough versus when there's like a silver lining or even something more constructive about it. Yeah, I I like them. Um I I differentiate between those that where the planets form at least a whole sign aspect versus the ones where they don't. Um mm-hmm. what I you know, I guess the way that I think about them these days is that you know, so one when you have mutual receptions, not always, but often you have planets that are in the opposite of their domicile um, or are in places where they're usually uncomfortable. Um, the one this month doesn't have that issue, but you know, one of them might be Mars in Libra and Venus in Aries, right? Where they're both in exile or detriment. Um, but they can look at each other and you know, and they they um, they rule one another. And so what I tend to see is that you have you will have um, many of the difficulties that are suggested by a, by the planets being you know in detriment or wherever they are that's problematic. But you'll also have benefits as if they were in signs that they were that they ruled. Um, you it you sort of you sort of get both rather than just getting the you know the low dignity version. Right. I love that. And it's easy for people to overlook, but it's such a key to really understanding some charts and why they operate or why they work sometimes as well as they do unexpectedly. Uh, so here's the completion of this re- reception that we're looking at right now at the very end of the month, um, April 30th, this, this mutual reception where Mercury gets to 19 Aries and forms an exact sextile with Mars at uh, 19 degrees of Gemini. So they're in, they're both exchanging signs or domiciles and they're completing an exact aspect with each other. Um, so I'm actually looking for chart examples of people that have either a, a reception, a traditional reception, which is when one planet is in the sign of another, and especially if they're still applying to an exact degree based aspect. Um, if you have a good example of reception in your chart and you know what that matches up with in your life in some way, then email it to me. Because I'm actually farming those out and looking for new additional examples over the course of the next month or so as I'm preparing that lecture. Um, yeah, so that's a nice reception, and that's a notable thing that's sort of characterizing the entirety of this month as soon as Mercury moves into Aries, because then it's just building up to that exact aspect for the entirety of the month until it looks like it goes exact on the very last day of April. So that begins about April 16th or 17th when. Mercury goes into Aries. Um, and it looks like that ingress of Mercury into Aries occurs right before we get that uh, lunation in Libra. And that's the second. The, se- the second lunation in Libra because it occurs, it's one of those rare instances we mentioned last month where we had one lunation right after the equinox, which occurred at like zero degrees of Libra at the beginning of the sun moving into Aries. The moon hit early Libra and formed a full moon, and now we're getting our second full moon about a month later at 29 degrees of Libra on April 19th. So 
two two lunations, two full moons in Libra, kind of a little bit unique. And it's interesting again with those being like the middle point between those two eclipses. Just a lot of energy happening in the cardinal signs. Yeah, it is interesting, and it's interesting that we you know we have one of the ways I was thinking about it and writing about it is you know we had a full moon in the first degree of Libra, and then we have a full moon in the last degree of Libra. And so there's a double emphasis on balance, on equilibrium, which is, you know, um, I think exactly what everybody needs to, <laughs> uh, exactly what's useful, you know, halfway between the eclipses, um, you know, starting the second quarter of this year, um, which is not full of friendly skies. Um, you know, it's like, you know, getting your getting your balance back, you know, getting getting, you know, uh, as as we mentioned earlier, you know, catching up on stuff, getting to the point where you've got, you know, you've got your balance, you know, things might not be perfect, but you've got all, you know, you're on top of it again and are ready to move forward from a place of balance rather than, you know, stumbling from week to week. Mm, I like that. That's a beautiful description. Thank you. One other thought that I, I mean, you're always so poetic, Austin. Um it's a Gemini thing. I've noticed people that have, I don't know, some personal stuff in Gemini. I don't know. Hmm. Anyway, sidebar, mental craziness. Uh, one thing I had observed or just thought about with this lunation, the full moon ruler Venus also at the very end of her sign at this lunation. So there is this real sense like the full moon at 29 degrees, Venus at 28 Pisces. It's like we've got this moment of of clarity or rebalancing or insight and then within 24 hours or so, we've got the shift of the sun into Taurus, Venus into a new sign. So it's like it, it hangs on the precipice and then something sort of shifts or drops away or changes form and focus um, quite quickly afterwards. So Right. This is like the critical turning point in the month. It is. Yeah. Sun and Venus, and I think as Austin said quite beautifully earlier, you know, they're in their exaltation signs and then they're not. <laughs> and both of them... <laughs> Both of them are there and they're not there quite quickly. Um, it, it's quite an interesting thing to have both change signs in the same 24-hour period. Yeah, and with that lunation, the other thing that's interesting is because Uranus is so early in Taurus, um, mm -hmm. You know, as soon as the moon is done with that lunation, it just immediately slips over into Scorpio and immediately opposes Uranus at two degrees of Taurus. And then the sun basically does the same thing, which is right after that full moon happening there in Libra on the 29 degrees of Libra Aries axis, the sun changes signs and then just immediately starts that application with Uranus at two degrees of Taurus, which it completes a couple of days later on the 22nd. Yeah. And so, I mean, really that sun Uranus thing is active for most of the end of April, like maybe say 20th mm. through 26th or something. Just give it, you know, a weekish. Give it a good week. Because yeah. the moon's going to ping that a couple times. Right. Um, so that's getting us into the later part of April at this point. And pretty much we start running into, at this stage, like I mentioned earlier, when the moon goes into Capricorn after completing its conjunction with Jupiter, um, Pluto stations retrograde at 23 degrees of Capricorn around April 24th, April 25th. Um, right around the same time that the moon's in Capricorn conjoining Saturn and Pluto in the south node weirdly. Um, and then not too long after that, just a few days later, the fall, the very last week of April 
on the 29th, we have Saturn also stationing retrograde in Capricorn. So there's some real intensification of that cluster of Capricorn planets um, that are all clustered around 20 and 23 degrees of Capricorn around this point in late April. Yeah. And and although it edges into May, you know, what shortly after the that pair of stations, we you can see there um on the 29th, Mercury is at 17 Aries. And so then Mercury is going to square Saturn and the South Node and Pluto and Venus is going to do the same. Um, and so, you know, it, it the the end of April and the first part of May is more challenging than that first three weeks of April that we've been talking about. Right. There's more, more focus yeah, on, the, on the weight um, of mm. the Saturn-Pluto South Node there um and yeah uh, anyway um but yeah when well, and if you're getting yeah. those transits like if you have sensitive points there sometimes it's when the stations happen that you get the intensification that produces a turning point or an event in that part of your life that coincides with that transit whether it's a positive one or a challenging one so that's also true with jupiter stationing over at 24 sag earlier in the month but definitely the people getting um a heavy transit or any sort of significant transit by the Saturn and Pluto around 20 to 23 degrees of Capricorn, whether it's conjoining or sextiling or trining or squaring or whatever, opposing natal planets in your chart, um, that, that last week of April is really going to be the focal point for that transit. Mm -hmm. And that, and again, that kind of um, issues, issues us into the next phase for Saturn. You know, Saturn's going to be retrograde for months. Right. And so just like Jupiter, the rest of the superior planets, Saturn, Saturn has its morning rising phase, its retrograde, and then its evening. And so it'll be retrograde for months. And so this is the sort of reevaluation phase. I think of the retrograde phase of Saturn as um, sort of inspection, you know, for what you built or, um, you know, an inspection to structural changes you made making sure you really got done all the things you were supposed to get done. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. The The Saturn station, I think it's really interesting, and you sort of alluded to this earlier, Chris, where if your chart is being activated, like, for instance, maybe you have a natal planet or chart point like the Ascendant, one of the other angles at 20 degrees of a cardinal sign, mm -hmm. you're sort of getting that you're getting a very strong dose of Saturn and experientially we could say loosely mid-April to mid-May given that the station's right at the end of the month of April. And that's – it's it's a bit of a – like a reality check or a call to clarity. You don't necessarily have to make all the changes immediately because you get that second activation later in the year where – um Saturn's going to return to 20 degrees cap and Jupiter's going to return to the 23, 24 degrees of Sag. But it's definitely letting you know the topics and the territory that need your full attention to be, you know, reworked, restructured, adjusted, consolidated, you know, insert appropriate adjective there. Brilliant. I love that. Good. All right. Um, and that's kind of how we close out April, honestly, like not to, not to close out on too sober of a note, but that's kind yeah. of what the last week or so is kind of like after uh, you know, some of the change in energy and the more dynamic nature of the first half of the month and some of the nice electional charts that we see then. 
Um, yeah, we just have a little bit of an intensification of the Saturn uh, Pluto south node Capricorn energy towards the end of the month in early May, and then that will start to usher us into uh, May and June and July and some of the major alignments that we talked about on the yearly forecast episode that are kind of coming up right around the corner from there. Yeah, well, and you know, one uh, uh, an additional angle on the Saturn south node Pluto stuff. Um, is that I, I, you know, I would say do whatever work is called for in that area. Don't put it off. Like, don't wait for, um, don't wait for eclipses to to happen on top of that Saturn South Node Pluto in order to deal with it. You know, mm. it doesn't mean a lot of times these things have their own pacing, and you can't necessarily zoom ahead and and graduate early. But you can you there is there's certainly the option to fall behind or keep up, and you know that Saturn South Node Pluto stuff isn't super fun for most people, um, but it's worth you know it's worth putting time in now so that it's not like an overdue bill when the um, you know when uh, uh, June and July's configurations roll around. Yeah, that's really great advice to start working on that now, especially if you can anticipate that. Is something that's coming up that might become more critical and something you already know you need to start working on to just start doing it now because that will help you to mitigate it and make sure it doesn't all hit you at once once we start getting those eclipses later in the middle of the year. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if people need to need some clarity about what that's about, you know, think back to think think back to the first half of January when we had our um our solar eclipse near that Saturn South Node Pluto. Right, some of the themes that rose then, and and how those have carried forward. Yeah, so that eclipse that was on in Capricorn on the fifth of January. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think is there anything major transit wise that we've completely overlooked or forgotten about as we've been going through this? Um. You got got anything, Kelly, in your three ephemerises? I mean, the only we don't. I know we don't always talk about every aspect, but the one at the end of the month that I've just got my eye on is Mars square Neptune. Mm, yeah, it's worth talking about on Saturday the twenty seventh. Yeah, you know, for the most part, there is sort of a, a lighter, more mobile energy to Mars in Gemini, but this square with Mars uh, squaring Neptune is is sort of a gluggy, clogged up, definitely more of a lethargic. You know, I often sometimes use the word comatose for Neptune, the idea of, of just being slowed down or needing that break or just to kind of escape. Um, so there's definitely, I don't know, confusion in the more negative, even sort of deceit and deception. But it, it's a hazy few days um, as Mars makes that square to Neptune at the end of the yeah, month. Yeah, I, I, I find that Neptune has significant power to debilitate Mars. It's like trying to yeah. drive a tractor through a lake. You know, you mm -hmm. just kind of like all that horsepower and it just kind of doesn't matter. Um, I, I find you know, energy levels and motivation often dips around then. Um, uh, Mars, Neptune squares, people, some uh, people's immune systems go down. Um, it's not, you know, it's not great for making fast progress. Yeah. It's not... <laughs> It's like the opposite of fast progress. Yeah, well, it's like, well, in what direction should I turn my efforts? And I don't really feel like doing it anyway. You know, it's that kind of energy. 
It's it's definitely. I mean, I yeah, I totally agree on that. Like, I don't really feel like doing it anyway. I mean, that's pretty much the vibe. And what a great compliment to Saturn and Pluto, sort of grinding to a halt in Capricorn and their forward movement, and then starting to turn back uh, at that time, or at least stationary, uh, virtually right around the same time. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, this being the hundredth reason, like make hay while the sun shines during the first part of the month, because the last 10 days is not really pro action. Yeah. Things are, (laughs) things are slowing down and coming to a bit of a standstill for a little bit. Yeah. And there are, you know, there are definitely revelations afoot with that moon, or excuse me, with the, with the sun, the sun's conjunction to Uranus. Um, But I don't Mm. think there's going to be action. No, sure. and and you know, and the no moon's weighing down, and yeah. So get it done. Get it done during the first part. All right. Yes. Brilliant. If you can, um, as much as so you can. I think that's the forecast for the month. What should I title this episode? Do you guys have like a pithy title for like June? Oh, or I'm going to defer to the Gemini Moon on that one. April astrology forecast. Uh, colon something very brief, like two or three words. Um, I I. We have different titling styles, Chris. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you would do like a whole paragraph, like if you could get away with it for the title of the episode. Mm, more like five or six words. Okay. I'm just trying to keep it on one line. That's my sort of imposed restriction. Uh, so I'm going to think of that if anybody in the audience. Okay. Sweetness and success because of the <laughs> Venus in Pisces, Jupiter, and Sag, but for the first half of the month only. Okay. I'll put that in parentheses. April, no, it's no, pretty that, that's good too long. for a while. <laughs> right. It's pretty good at the start. Thumbs up emoji. All right. Uh, I think that's it, guys. So thanks for joining me today for the forecast for April. Oh, my Our, pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having my us. Pleasure. Always fun to yeah. chat. We will be back again next month for the forecast for May. And then after that, we're going to be doing potentially the next one we're thinking about doing at Norwalk, one of these forecast episodes oh, live. Yeah in person uh, in Seattle in front of a live audience, or at least some sort of cool discussion in person. I guess we're still working that out, but we'll see what happens. Um, do you guys have anything else to mention before we wrap up? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, classes, sphere and sundry elections, um, you know, I'm Patreon writing, sort of all my standard stuff. You can find it at austincopic.com. Kelly? Yeah, very similar. Um, Classes, consults are booked out for a couple of months. So if you are thinking that you'd like a reading, I'm I'm letting people know book a couple of months in advance right now. Uh, And there'll be, you know, changes to my timing with availabilities come July after we move. Uh, But yeah, I'm just, I'm teaching for most of April, Uh, teaching online, different classes, all on kellysastrology.com. Brilliant. And as for me, uh, my list is like, not sure if I'm doing horoscopes this month because I'm moving this week. I'll see. I'll try to get it together if I can. Um, looking for possible volunteers to do transcripts of the astrology podcast because we've been slowly organizing those over the past six months. And there's actually some new ones on the website if you go to theastrologypodcast.com slash transcripts. Um, also, I'm looking for WordPress design themes, both for my consulting site as well as for the podcast website to potentially design, redesign it. I'm working with somebody on that, but if you happen to know of a good theme that would look good, then please send it in because I'd love to see it. Um, Also possibly looking for website designers. If anybody is good with WordPress, I might be looking for somebody to work with. And then finally, 
episode 200 is coming next month. Um, you guys, Kelly, you and I did the first forecast episode back in June of 2015, and that was episode 32 of the Astrology Podcast. And then Austin joined us the very next month, next actually, month. for yes. episode 34. And it's so funny because both of those were really impromptu. We were just like, you and Kel Kelly and I, I think it was like at Norwalk or something, maybe. It was we totally at Norwalk, and you were like, I need to you know, be more creative. We'll just do more stuff with the podcast. And anyway, we somehow came up with the idea of a monthly forecast show and we just did it the next month. And then Austin was visiting yeah, you I was, the month I was after maybe. Yeah, I was speaking at a tarot conference yeah. in Denver and I was crashing That's with right. Yeah. And then it's just been the three of us ever since. <laughs> right. Offering some insight and a whole lot of, you know, madness as well. <laughs> So it's like how many episodes? That's at least like fifty forecast episodes we've done. So I'm about to celebrate episode two hundred. So a quarter of those episodes were actually then, presumably with you guys, if my multiplication is correct. Uh, well, close to it. I mean, yeah. we would have done twelve episodes a year for nearly four years. Oh, and then right. we did a we, we did the uh, we did a, a significations well, we of the basic the planets, and then we did. Yep. Um, uh, blah, blah, blah. We did uh, uh, Zodiac one and two, and then yeah. Chris, you and I have done one or two separate, and Kelly, you've done a couple separate with Chris. Yeah, that's true. We've done a few pairs. Yeah, so between the three of us, we we've contributed. Yeah, I think altogether that's definitely over fifty episodes. So that's at least a quarter yeah. of the two hundred episodes that I've done have been with you guys. So thank you both for joining me on this. This has been really amazing and it's definitely changed my life over the past few years. I think I launched the page on Patreon around the same time and all, all the support I've received from listeners has totally changed my life and is allowing me and Lisa to finally move out of our crappy basement apartment and move into something a little bit more nice and that's going to improve the <laughs> so sound overdue. so that there's not like dogs barking and other stuff that is baked into some of the classic most important episodes of the podcast in the past, hopefully no longer in the future. Um, but yeah, thanks to both of you two and as well as all the all the patrons and all the listeners who've supported the podcast over the past two years. And I'm gonna keep pushing to improve and expand what I'm doing and just keep keep going and making it bigger and better. Yeah, you're doing a wonderful service for astrology, Chris. It's uh it's amazing to see how it's taken off. And I mean, I love doing these shows with you guys every month, so it's just wonderful to be a part of it in even a small way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and well, it's just fun doing it together because we get to like hang out and talk and catch totally. up each month and talk astrology, which we would normally do. Gives us an excuse to do what we'd love to do privately, anyways. But we're doing it as part of you know our, our profession and doing what we love. Yeah, it's been a really wonderful thing. I I I I appreciate. It. Thank you for uh, for having me as part of it. I like it. It's been it's been it's yeah. been good, you know, and it's. Um, you know, it's changed your life, but it's also, I, I think, changed. Uh, I don't, I don't want to over say it. It's you know, it's changed everybody's lives who's listened, but it kind of has, or at least a, a goodly proportion. Yep. You know, you've you've changed some of the the topography of what the discussion, what discussions are are happening in Astroland, and absolutely for the better. So you know, cheers to the next four years. At yeah. Least. Well, I did. I, it's yeah. been four. Sorry, I wasn't saying it should end. No, no, at I know, I know. I <laughs> no, totally. I had this weird flash the other day where I was like, "Are we still going to be doing these shows 
like, because Austin, you and I just both had a big birthday. I'm like, will we still be doing these shows when we celebrate our 50ths? And I was like, probably. Uh, I mean, if people are still interested in listening, we're not going to lose our passion for astrology. So it just feels like you've started something amazing, Chris, that is making such a contribution to our field. Yeah, well, it's been a lot of fun having the opportunity to do that, and I can't believe I'm able to. And I'm going to try to reinvest in the community because I want to start doing more serious interviews with some astrologers. I've been talking with Michael Earlywine about doing an interview with mm-hmm. him, and he unfortunately recently had a stroke. But we're <laughs> talking about actually moving, uh, flying out there to do an in-person interview with him to sort of capture part of his story. As like I've said in recent episodes, one generation of astrologers is kind of like on their way or is handing over the baton to another and uh, capturing some of those stories while we have a chance to. So uh, I think that's going to be the goal for the next 100 episodes of the Astrology Podcast. So we'll see what happens. That's beautiful. Yeah. Somebody in the comments just said, oh, it's like Venus is in Pisces now or something. I'm like, yeah, showing the love. Right. Uh, and that's a wonderful thing, Chris, because I know that generational shift, it's so wonderful to capture those legacies and those that wisdom that people who have been doing this for longer than we've been alive, you know, their experience is something that you kind of want to pres- preserve for posterity and you have a wonderful vehicle to be able to do that. Yeah, and that's what I'm going to do and that's what I'm taking like the Patreon money that's coming in. I'm funneling that into video and audio equipment so I can start flying out because I'm doing remote interviews, but the next stage of the podcast, I think, is doing high quality, like 4K interviews, like with some of these famous astrologers that are still around and learning and documenting some of that astrological history to pass on to the next generation. And some of those stories that you can only get by talking to a person. And I don't want it just to be these small boxes through Zoom, but actually like sitting with people in person and like flying to their home to interview them in a much more intimate setting. I think that's going to be going to be my goal. So, mm. yeah. Uh, so, if people want to help support that, then sign up and become a patron, and that's going to be my goal for the next hundred episodes. Love it. All right, guys. Well, I've got some moving to do, uh, some boxes yes. to move. I have like two, <laughs> a few books to pack up. Yeah, one, one or two. I have no. I have, <laughs> Lisa is not excited about me move, us having to move like thirty or forty boxes of books, and I've got a ton of bookshelves to set up, but. Hopefully, the next episode should be shot in the new studio. So I look forward to showing it to everybody yeah. here. And remember in to lift so. from the knees, Chris. <laughs> lift from the knees. Okay. I will remember that. Thank you. Um, thanks to our audience of patrons who are attending this live recording. We appreciate it. We love your comments. Thanks for everybody to everybody for listening. And we will see you next time. 